welcome in everybody. Episode 64 of Four Score the Podcast. Andrew May alongside Rob Jufray with you. Our good buddy Bruce Shine will join the show in a little bit, as he always does. And we got plenty to do tonight. Uh, we have the Brooklyn Nets tied 2-2 in their series with the Milwaukee Bucks. Game five kicking off tonight. Um, big injury to Kyrie Irving, James Harden. Still coming back from that hamstring injury. Looks like he's going to give it a go tonight. Uh, but we'll break down that series a little bit later on. We'll talk about baseball. We spend a lot of time on baseball every single episode. And we had the memo from the league with the crackdown and sticky substances that will be put into effect on June 21st. We have the Mets who are continuing to play very good baseball, continue to win. They have a big homestand right now, taking two or three from the Padres, took game one of a four-game set with the Cubs. And on the flip side of the coin, you have the Yankees who just – they just keep getting lower and lower and lower, and it's to the point where it looks like they're going to crash and burn. So we'll talk about the state of both baseball teams a little bit later on as well. But we have to start nowhere else, but Rob, with our beloved New York Rangers, who officially named their new head coach yesterday, coming to terms with Gerard Gallant. This is a guy that Rob and I have been clamoring over for a while, even since the middle of this past season, uh, when it became abundantly clear that David Quinn was not the coach to lead this team to where they want to go. They have a boatload of talent, but they don't possess enough toughness. Uh, Rob always uses the phrase north-south players. They do not have enough of them, and it didn't seem like Quinn and the front office really valued that whatsoever. Um, We were a little perplexed with the decision to let go of Gorton and John Davidson. Um, But it's not so much the fact that they got rid of him. It was the manner in which it happened that kind of left fans in in a state of confusion. But Chris Jury is at the helm. He did his due diligence in the process of finding a new head coach, waited it out until the first and second round of the playoffs were done to see what the availability would be of potential candidates Uh, with Mike Sullivan in Pittsburgh. There was questions over his future there. Rod Brindamore, his contract was up with the Carolina Hurricanes. We did not know whether or not he was going to be returning there. So Jury did the right thing. He waited around and then he pounced on the guy that we've been wanting from the very beginning. Gallant has had his time around the NHL. He was a very good player himself. Had time with the Florida Panthers. He's won there. Took the Vegas Golden Knights in their first year of existence to a Stanley Cup final. uh, Their first year as an expansion team. He's won there. So this is a winning head coach, and I think he draws a lot of comparisons to what the Knicks have seen this season with Tom Thibodeau. He's not going to be the most endearing head coach in the world. He's not going to be the friendliest guy when talking to the media. He's not going to coddle players. He's going to demand the very best out of you. He's going to command the room. He's going to command respect. He's a winning head coach. And the number one order of business, the top priority, is putting out a winning product. And there was a very good interview with Yarimer Yager that I read in the New York Post where Yager was talking about the time that he played with Gallant when he was with the Florida Panthers. And Yager was waxing poetic about him. Yager said that he believes that the Rangers are in a really good spot talent-wise, but he saw that there was a clear disconnect with the skilled forward that the Rangers possess and David Quinn. With the style of play that Quinn was pressing the Rangers to play and the style of play that the skilled forwards are used to playing, it just did not mesh. It did not match up. And he believes that Gallant, being a very skilled winger in his playing days, he knows what it's like to go out there and, and have that style of play so he can relate to those players. But he's also a tough SOB, and he values the toughness and grit that you need to win 
uh, playoff hockey games. So he's going to have his input with the front office. He obviously has a vision that aligns with Chris Drury's about where he thinks this team should go. And all in all, you heard a lot of names. Rick Tockett was another one. John Tortorella was another. But from the very beginning, Rob, Gerard Gallant was the first name that we mentioned as a candidate for this head coaching vacancy. He's the guy they end up signing. And as a Rangers fan, I don't think there's any way that you could be disappointed in this. I think you have to be happy. Uh, that they got this decision correctly and we'll ultimately see how the rest of the off season pans out. And this is going to be a really important one, but looks like they got their guy. Yeah, absolutely. We've been saying it since the beginning, Andrew. Gerard Gallant was the guy we wanted and that's the guy we got. Now it's up to Chris Drury to get the players that are needed now to uh, support this roster, those North South type plays. And you know what kind of player they need? They need a player like Gerard Gallant, who in one season had himself 93 points and 213 penalty minutes. Those are the guys that you're looking for. So, you know, he's got, he's got some toughness there. Now, look, he, has, he, has he maintained longevity in some of these spots that he's coaching? No. But he's had success. He's been a winner. And, you know, I read an interesting article yesterday, I think it was in The Athletic, where they almost compared him to Barry Trotz because, you know, Barry Trotz was always considered a very good coach but could never win big games until finally he took the Washington Capitals uh, to a Stanley Cup a couple of years ago, and now you're seeing what he's doing with the Islanders. So, you know, y- you hope that he's the type of guy that's going to come here and maybe get over that hump and lead the Rangers to, you know, uh, a championship one day in the next couple of years. But right now, we don't have to worry about seeing the Phil Giuseppes, the Brett Howdens, the Kevin Rooney's, the Colin Blackwells getting more, more minutes of ice time than the Capo Cacos and Alexi Lafreniere's of the world. Because that was happening under Quinn, and that was an utter disgrace what was going on. So you're not going to see that now with Gerard Gallant. I would sincerely doubt that. No, so look, absolutely. They got themselves a professional NHL coach now. That's what they got. And I, I, I'm, I'm all for it. That's the guy, like I said, I wanted. Look, there was, you know, as far as anybody out there, he was the best guy out there. We didn't want a reunion with Tortorella again. Been there, done that. Rod Brindamore was not coming here. If he doesn't go back to Carolina, he'll go join his buddy Ron Francis in Seattle. Francis now being a general manager there. So, you know, I mean, who else was going to be available? Maybe Paul Maurice might be get let go by, by Winnipeg. You know, who knows? But he was the best guy out there, Gallant. And I think they got the best guy out there. They got them in. And now it's going to be up to them after the Stanley Cup is over. It's going to be up to Chris Drury now to get the players that Gallant needs to, you know, to coach this team, uh, you know, to a playoff spot, hopefully next year. Yeah. And we all know the type of players they need. We've been saying it all along. Yeah. And, and that, that's the thing that even Yager addressed in that article that I was referencing before. And we were talking a little bit on the phone yesterday, Rob, we both acknowledged the fact that although when we watch these playoff games that are currently going on, we realize how far away the Rangers are. It's maddening because at the same time, the Rangers have more talent than a lot of these teams that are in the postseason. It's just, they don't have the, the makeup to win the playoff games. They don't play the style of hockey that's necessary to win in the trenches when the going gets tough. The, go, the skilled goal scorers are not always going to be the ones to carry you. Look, for instance, how much success have the Eminent and Oilers had in the postseason in the past five years? Hell, sometimes they're not even making the postseason, and they have the best player on the planet. So it's not always the skilled wingers that are going to get you by. It's going to be the guys who are good on special teams, those third and fourth line forwards who are not just tough guys that are going to rack up penalty minutes. Yes, you need that. But you also need guys who can produce. And as Rob pointed out before, I mean, Gallant was the perfect 
he was the best of both worlds in his playing days. So I think he's going to have a keen eye for the type of players that this team is missing. And we talked about Chris Drury once before. We've said how he is analytically driven and he is with the new age of analytics in hockey, but he also is not heavily reliant on the analytics. And there's a big difference. Being in tune with the analytics and leaning solely on the analytics is a huge, huge difference. And I can't that can't be overstated that there is a huge difference there. And Drury seems like he has a perfect mixture, a perfect blend of both of them to be able to mold this team into a contender. But as you said, Rob, this is just the first step, right? This was the guy we wanted. You can be happy about the hire, but ultimately this is going to be a very, a very telling off season and what direction the Rangers are going to go in. They have a good amount of cap space to make some moves. We know the type of players that they need. And obviously they have the 15th pick in the draft. And that's a big question coming up this off season too. Will the Rangers be selecting at 15 or will they use that as a trade ship to pr- try to bring in a legitimate number two center? Will they use it as a trade ship to maybe build a little bit more on the defensive side and maybe try to rid themselves of a large contract. There's a bunch of different directions they can go in, but the direction that they were going with David Quinn, obviously w- was not a good one. Uh, Well, I can't say it wasn't a good one. They were headed in the right direction, but they were not accelerating fast enough and they were kind of moving laterally instead of continuing to move over the ladder. I think now having a bona fide winning coach like Gallant, it's going to get them to the next level. And I said he draws a lot of comparisons to Tom Thibodeau because think about it, Rob, Tom Thibodeau really has not had uh, long stays in the places that he's coached either. He's gone to places he's won, but he hasn't really lasted that long. But Thibodeau still got an opportunity with the Knicks, and his specialty is doing more with less. And the Rangers certainly have a lot to work with. So this is a perfect guy, and now the offseason will be, will be a telling one about how quickly they get to the top of the mountain here. Yeah, and you go back to your Edmonton point. Don't forget they probably have the two best players on the planet. Yeah, Leon, Leon Dreisaitl is unbelievable is, as well. He's a phenomenal yep. player in his own right. So you look at them, and you look at the success Pittsburgh had with Crosby and Malkin, but they were also surrounded with that greediness around them at all times, whether it be on defense or other forwards, they had those third and fourth lines, you know, and you, you go to the Islanders now who are, you know, listen, it pains me to say it, but you look at them and they roll out four lines consistently. I mean, as far as the ice time, there's no disparity in ice time amongst any of those four lines. You know, you got guys like Barzell playing 16, 17 minutes, and you got guys like Clutterbuck and Zizekas and, and Matt Martin playing 12 to 13 minutes. You know, that you don't see anybody playing three, four minutes on that team. So, and the Islanders, you know, hey, listen, they took game one in the, in, the, uh, in the series against the Lightning here. They won a game two to one. They don't do anything sexy, the Islanders. But again, sexy does not win in the playoffs. The team that the Islanders built with wins. Uh, now, look, it doesn't mean you go building your team that way. It just happens to be the right team. The Islanders are not a fun team to watch. Yeah, they're winning, so it looks fun. But at the same time, you know, you see the Islanders for most games, although game one against the Lightning the other night, you know, they outshot the Lightning, which was shocking. But for the most part, the Islanders are getting badly outshot. They're getting badly outshot. But, you know, listen, they capitalize on their opportunities. They don't give teams second and third chances in front of the crease. So, you know, look, the Islanders are playing some terrific hockey. Volamov is hot as a pistol right now. And, we all know the hot goaltender normally wins Stanley Cup, so it takes you takes you to a Stanley Cup at the very least. So, I mean, the Islanders beat the Lightning in this series. That would be, in my opinion, a big upset only because of the talent level that the Lightning have. Yes. So yes, you know, they you, they roll four lines deep full of guys who could be oh second line God. forwards yeah. on every other team in, in, in the National Hockey League. 
Uh, but again, they're not guys who are just finessers and don't win wars in the trenches. I mean, they're they're phenomenal at special teams as well, and that's what's made the Lightning so good these past couple of years. But the Islanders, they play that brand of hockey, and the Islanders, I think, are a good exhibit as to how far away the Rangers are until they get those guys. Because whenever the Rangers play the Islanders, it is a bloodbath, and it's because the Rangers are not physical enough. They get outclassed in every square inch of the ice. The Islanders are... are they're known for clogging up that neutral zone, not letting you get anything. And like you said, Rob, not getting those second and third opportunities in the crease. You know, the Rangers, if they're not scoring from our, you know, with Zibanejad or Artemi Panarin, they don't have any of those North South players who are fighting hard in front of the net to get those second chances, right? We, we talk about all the time, the big body of Chris Kreider and how beneficial that could be. Well, he never uses it. And they really don't have a lot of guys who can win wars in the trenches like that. They need to possess them. And I think the Islanders are the perfect test. And Barry Trotz is the perfect test, uh, the perfect exhibit, too, of a coach who's doing less with more. The Islanders, by no means, are not the most talented team on the planet. But like you said, they roll four lines deep. And there's not a huge disparity in the ice time. Everybody is doing their part. When it's not Barzell, it's the second line with Eberle. When it's not them, it's that fourth line with Clutterbuck, Martin, Sezikis. They all get it done. They're good defensively. They have goaltending. They have the perfect mix right now. So game two tonight with the Lightning. This will be a huge test for the Islanders tonight. I mean, if they can come out there and take a 2-0 series lead against the Lightning, winning both games in Tampa, you know the Coliseum is going to be rocking in game three. They're in a really, really good spot if they win this game tonight. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, you know, there's got to come a point where the Islanders are just going to – I thought it was going to be game one here where the Islanders were just going to lose 6-1, to you know, (laughs) because I'm just expecting that sort of game coming from the Islanders. It's got to happen. I mean, they played so consistently in these playoffs. I mean, every game, they don't really give up much with the exception of some shots, yes. But they don't give up a lot in the way of goals and stuff like that. So I was expecting the Lightning to come out and just thrash them in game one. But that didn't happen. Uh, you know, so uh, look, who are they better on paper, the Lightning? Absolutely. They are better on paper, but they're so well coached, the Islanders. They really, really are. I mean, I, I tell you the truth, put David Quinn coaching the Islanders. Are the Islanders even a playoff team? No, absolutely not. Absolutely probably, not. Probably not. Probably not. So – but, you know, that's what I'm saying. It's just amazing to me that, again, we go back to it, that that the Capitals let go of, of Barry Trotz. I mean, they're going to be on their third coach pretty soon because I don't think Laviolette, he's another guy, Laviolette, he's, you know, he's been all, he's like a journeyman coach. He's all over the place, Laviolette. So, you know, I mean, and we'll see what happens. Good, and he's had some really good teams. He's had some good teams, whether it be the, the Flyers or in Nashville. Nashville, and that was the Nashville had a tremendous team. I in mean, Nashville. you know, yeah. so, and he really hasn't culminated into much. Yeah, he gets his, his teams win, but they don't win big games and big playoff series. Right. So, you know, that's, we'll see what happens. And on the other side now, going to basketball, you got the Nets, Andrew. And well, actually, hold, hold off on that. I just wanted to get, we have one voicemail hockey related. Oh, okay. I, I want to play that before we get to the basketball. This is from uh, one of the t- big Tommy Lochran's friends, Phil Bronco. Uh, we thank him for listening and supporting, and he leaves a voicemail. It has to do with the Islanders, so let's have at it. Hey, how you doing? This is Phil Bronco from Staten Island, New York. Um, just started listening to your podcast. I love it, uh, especially when Tommy Lochran's on it. Anyway, I'm calling about the New York Islanders. I'm so excited about today's game. Uh, the game six um, – uh, semifinal there against the uh, Bruins was insane. Um, it was probably the best hockey I've seen in a while. But the one thing I want to complain about is how is it possible that Kucherov can be playing and making him over the cap 
it sounds like they were playing games with the salary cap, the Tampa Bay Lightning. Um, looking forward to a good game. Hopefully this afternoon we get a game one win. Thanks a lot. Take care. So obviously he left that voicemail on Sunday before the game yeah. one game against the Lightning. Yeah. Uh, listen, I mean, this has been a thing. You're not supposed to do it. They're doing it. For those of you who don't know, they placed Nikita Kucherov. Oh, you're not, the most skilled you, you can do it. It's within the rules. It's not like you're not supposed to do it. I mean, no, it, it, it is completely against the rules. And it, there's a there's a clause in the NHL rule book that forbids you from doing it. But there's ways to get around it. And, and they got around ways it. get around it. So you can't really yeah. listen. If you want them to change the clause so that it's completely ruled out. as You, you want to say you want to say it's frowned upon. Fine. Say it's frowned upon. But what they did was within the NHL rules, they put him on. Look, he had hip surgery in December. He was going to be out long term, which he was. He had a nine million dollar salary. But the bottom line is what they need to straighten out is the salary cap in the playoffs. You can be over the salary cap in the playoffs by a hundred million dollars if you want. That's what they need to straighten out. And if they want to straighten it out, they'll straighten it out. But otherwise, whatever the Lightning have done, look, it's out in the open. Everybody's seen what they did. Everybody's seen what they did. Yeah, so, and if and 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 honestly, if they were purposely trying to circumvent the cap, you got to remember something too. Nikita, Nikita Kucherov has a say in the matter. He could have played. He could have played. He could have caused a stink. He could have filed yes. a grievance against the team if he would have been ready to play before the postseason. So I get Absolutely. it. They're over the cap, but they're allowed to be over the cap for the playoffs. Maybe they kept them out a week or two longer than they than they. You know, maybe he was available to come back a week or two before he did, and they held right, him. But out. why even bring him back? At why that even point? bring him back at that point? The Tampa Bay Lightning were still going to be amongst the best teams in the league. And, and listen, I think honestly, I mean, I don't, I don't know Phil, but listen, I know a lot of Islanders fans, and every single Islander fan I know, where they were all crying like babies about that before the season even started, greasing the skids for an excuse if they were to lose this series to the Lightning. Now they win Game One, and now all is good in Islanders land. So. You know, it happens, whatever. If you don't want it to happen, then have the NHL change the rule. But don't be mad right. at Tampa Bay Lightning for taking advantage of a clause. in. you know, it's it's the clause in the rule book that forbids it from happening is circumventing the cap. But if you have independent doctors that look at it at a case-by-case basis and they come to the conclusion that the player is going to be out for X amount of time and he returns in X amount of time, then there's nothing you could do about it. And that's exactly what happened here with in, in the Lightning's point of view. And now they have one of their best players back, didn't really make an impact on on game one because the Islanders were able to win, but just something you got to deal with. And probably what they will tweak is the is the rule about going over the salary cap in the for the playoffs. They might tweak that a little bit. You know, they might say you're allowed to go over by 20% of your salary cap or something to that effect. They'll come to some sort of a compromise. So that would be the situation there. And so yeah. and, and and that would probably help prevent what would what the lightning did do. But again, it's out in the open, you know, so Everybody's seen what they did. Yeah. From well, December and, and, on. And when they first announced the hip surgery, they announced right then and there how long he was going to be out for and that they were hopeful that he would be back for the playoffs. So it's right. not like they said this was going to be a three, four week thing. And, and just again, he's a, great, he's a great player. He's one of the top players in NHL. And nobody's guaranteed making the playoffs. You know, you're losing one of your best players. Maybe the Lightning felt, okay, we have enough to support, you know, just get us a playoff spot. But look, in, in, in in this in this uh, um, in this season, it was only the top four teams that were you were in that division with. So you're not guaranteed anything. So yeah. they did lose a player for the entire uh, regular season in Kucherov that 
is one of the top 10 players in the league. Yeah, no, I mean, he's good, leading the playoffs a, and scoring. That's so, a good point. With this shortened season and with the divisional realignment, nothing's it, it, guaranteed. Is a, it is a roll of the dice to be sitting out one of your best players because right. there's a lot of uncertainty this season. Now, granted, like you said, when you first started talking, did the Lightning have enough to get by without him? Yeah, obviously they did, and they probably knew that when going into it. But nothing was guaranteed this season with the divisional realignment. Everything was up in the air. Nothing was guaranteed. So, you know, you wouldn't be taking the chance of, of sitting out your best player as, with the ruling the playoffs as a given. Um, and when you talk about injuries, I mean, listen, that's a perfect segue into what we were going to go into before, Robin. That's with the basketball. When you talk about the Brooklyn Nets, uh, Kyrie Irving with the ankle sprain, um, in game three, he ends up missing game four along with James Harden. It was a KD solo show, and the Bucks beat them. So after the Nets just went out there and completely pounced on the Bucks in games one and games two, it didn't even look like this was going to be a series. Uh, now the Bucks return to their home floor to get big wins in game three and game four, and now game five will be back at the Barclays Center tonight. And listen, I, I got to say, James Harden is going to give it a go tonight. He's going to play. And that – in and of itself shows you that there is some internal panic in the Nets locker room. Desperation. There's, you can even call it desperation in that Nets locker room. Um, I seriously don't think the Bucks are that good of a team. And we were on here. We're quoted as saying it last week. Rob and I are both tired of seeing the Bucks in the postseason because they're frauds. Um, so ultimately, even if it was Kevin Durant by himself, I wouldn't rule the Nets out in this series. But uh, after seeing Durant by himself in game four and having a loss – if, if Harden is going to say that he's good enough to play, he's going to play. And he's going to go out there and barring a pregame setback, which we, we haven't heard of to this point as we're sitting here recording right now, Harden is going to play. I don't know if he's going to be on a minutes restriction. I don't know. But the last time this happened with James Harden, he went out there and he tested a pregame. He went out there and he played. He re-aggravated it. So that certainly wouldn't be a welcome sign. But listen, this is gonna. This is probably the worst possible thing that can happen to the Nets is they lose because of injuries. Because I hear a lot of people talking about there's not pressure on the Nets because they built this team to win with the star players, and if the star players aren't healthy enough to play, then there's no pressure on him. There, there's an excuse there. I would argue that it's the complete opposite. Them being injured just completely accelerates this process and turns it into desperation because if you – are ruling one of these postseason years as a wash because those guys are hurt, that's one less chance that you have to justify giving up all the assets that you did for James Harden. So now if these guys are not going to be here for the rest of the series and James Harden's going to play, but he's not vintage James Harden and the Nets end up losing, then that just, you're putting all your eggs in one basket. You're putting all the onus on next year's postseason. And that would be a telling sign as to whether or not that trade for Harden was a success. Now you can't say that signing Kyrie and signing Durant wasn't a success because look, they're better off now than they were without those guys. They were going to sign them anyway. The Harden trade is going to be one that's discussed for a long time. And if you're losing one of your postseasons because two of your big three are unavailable, not an ideal spot to be in. So there is a lot of pressure on the nets to try to win this, win this series here. Absolutely. But look, look, you're not guaranteed not to, to stay injury free. You know, and, and Irving turned an ankle. Little things like that can happen. It, it can happen. And it's happened to the, to the Nets. But, look, you still can't fault them for doing the hard-earned trade. They gave up what they had to give up. They, they, they wanted to win at least one championship here in the next couple of years. But, you know, when you have these sort of injuries, you're not guaranteed anything. And I'll tell you the truth. You and Bruce called it a couple of weeks ago because you guys both were on the Phoenix Suns then. The Phoenix Suns absolutely dismantled the Denver Nuggets. Unbelievable. I mean, my God, they look 
they look absolutely terrific, that team. And right now you could say that they could be the favorites. I have a, I have a buddy who had, who got them at plus 2,800 to win the finals. Wow. When, when Chris Paul first went there, he got them at plus 2,800. Oh, Chris and that's Paul looking, is playing all world right now. All oh world. My God, my God. And this is a guy, Chris Paul is a guy who has went out there. He's, he's a, per, he's perennially in the playoffs. But he seems to have the worst luck in the postseason. He's always getting injured. He actually got banged up earlier in the postseason, was able to, to, to battle through it. But he's playing some of the best basketball in the world. Um, you know, obviously, the, the Denver Nuggets were shorthanded, obviously, not having Jamal Murray, uh, who tore his ACL early at the later part of the regular season. That's huge. But, I mean, they held Jokic in check, who's one of the best players in this in this series. Didn't allow him to be an otherworldly difference maker in the series. Devin Booker is one of the best young players in the game. DeAndre Ayton, in my opinion, although the stats really don't bear it out, just watching him play the eye test, he is a budding superstar. And it's refreshing to see those types of players in a league that's driven by the outside shooting, seeing a guy like Ayton dominate the paint and do a good job against a guy like Jokic, who just won MVP. I mean, the, the Phoenix Suns have a really, really good team, and they got past the Lakers, they got past the Nuggets, and listen, it, it's looking more and more like, you know, we said, who out of the West is beating the Nets? Who out of the West is beating anybody in the Eastern Conference if the Lakers don't make it? But, I mean, the Suns made quick work of them, made quick work of the Nuggets, and looking like the Suns are going to be a tough task here. And, well, me, and Bruce, and I, me and Bruce were on it, Rob, but you're giving us a little bit too much credit because I did not see them coming out and playing this good. I mean, they are impressive. Yeah, no, they're, they're impressive, and and look again, who you know, you can't account for the injuries. And if Durant is flying solo here, and I tell you the truth, I don't think Kyrie Irving's coming back anytime soon, you know, on that sort of an ankle. And who knows what's going to happen with Harden tonight? Now you're I talking mean, about could, you're talking about if Irving did that in the regular season, four weeks minimum, he's out. Oh, absolutely. So maybe you accelerate that, and it's only two weeks because it's the postseason. I know, but you but still, still. to accelerate a high ankle sprain. Yeah. I mean, there's just no accelerating that. You're either healthy or you're not healthy. And how weird is it, Rob? Coming into this season, your biggest question mark was Durant's health coming off the Achilles injury. Yeah. And here we are in the postseason, and it's going to be Durant flying solo with Harden with the hamstring and Irving with the ankle, and Durant playing like vintage Kevin Durant. Yeah, absolutely. And look, can the Nets still win this series without Irving and Harden? Absolutely. Yeah, It'll be a can. little tougher, but they can absolutely win this series. I mean, uh, you know, there's no... There's no uh, question uh, uh, as far as that, but I tell you, if they don't, oh man, oh man, you know, I, I look, it's it's not it's not it's not like they have a Nick fan base and Nick backers or anything like that. The Nets, the Nets basically are a smaller fan base, obviously, you know, so they're not as passionate as the as the as the Knicks are, but you know, there'll be a lot of disappointed uh, um, Nets fans out there. That's for sure. And then you have to question whether or not this was the right move for them to make as far as the trade for James Harden and giving up the assets that they gave up. But again, I felt like it, it always will be because you need to you need to strike while the iron's hot, Andrew. You know, when you have Durant and Irving there and you had a, a shot at James Harden, they took the shot. So, you know, I mean... I mean, this is going to be interesting. <laughs> I the, tell you, the onus they, they was lose on the that Nets. game tonight, man. Woo. Yeah, they're in trouble. But the the onus that's what makes this so interesting is because the onus was on the Nets to win because of the the amount of assets that they gave up. Um, but I don't think anyone foresaw this these circumstances where they would be derailed because of injury. I mean, Irving has had an injury riddled past in some capacity. He has had some knee problems. I mean, this was a freak thing with the ankle. 
And Harden, I mean, Harden's been made a steal. He hasn't really yeah. missed a ton of games with injuries. No. So, like I said, I mean, you came into the season with questions about how Kevin Durant's Achilles was going to hold up, and and he looks like vintage Kevin Durant. So you certainly sit, didn't see this coming and unraveling in the fashion in which it did. And maybe unraveling is the wrong word too, because like you said, there's still an opportunity for win for them to win this series. But what a difference a week makes because we were talking about Brooklyn having a cakewalk to the finals because no one could keep up with them, and now just a week later, two of their big three are out and they've you know they haven't looked great even with the big three in game three they didn't look good and in game four without them they didn't look good either so this is going to be a tough game they have the home court advantage tonight the game kicks off at 8 30 so this is a decisive game would you agree with me in saying that whoever wins this game wins the series uh i'm not going to say that uh, you know only because you know i i just don't believe that you know look it's it's a critical game game fives are always a critical game but look if, if the Nets happen to win this game, you know, Milwaukee goes back home. Uh, anything could happen. And if Irving and Harden are not healthy, you know, there's no reason why you can't win two games in a row, even though we do know that Milwaukee is a bunch of frauds. But, you know, so I'm not going to say that so much. But, look, it does it make it easy? Of course it does. You're up three games to two. You know, game five is always a critical game. But I'm not going to say that the series would be over either way for whoever wins tonight. So that I, I don't. I don't believe our good pal Bruce hops on with us. Bruce, don't you find it so, so strange that the number one question coming into this season with the Brooklyn Nets was going to be how Kevin Durant would be performing coming back from the Achilles injury. And here we are in game five of the second round of the playoffs. And Kevin Durant is riding solo with his main two, his main two partners in crime, Kyrie Irving and James Harden having to deal with the injury bug, how the script is flipped. Am I right? Yeah, I think there's obviously a couple of, ultra captivating storylines here, not just the overall plight of the Nets team right now, but, you know, the narrative slash legacy, if you want to go that far, you know, of Kevin Durant, you know, Kevin Durant hasn't been, you know, cut any slack in terms of, you know, what's been, you know, behind his championship glory, if you will. He, he, he joined a, a battle tested championship laden team. It wasn't exactly along there for the ride. I'm not trying to suggest that. But he gets his two rings, joining those Warriors teams that already won it all, that had Steph, that had Thompson. Uh, you know, LeBron, while obviously he didn't win anything until he te- teamed up with, with Bosch and Wade, at least had shown you that he is capable of taking a mediocre lot, putting it on his shoulders, and, and taking him a step or two farther. We really haven't seen that with Durant, and that's precisely where we are right now. Sands Irving, at the very best, a severely diminished Harden. Obviously, tip-offs about an hour from now. We'll see what he has with that hamstring. But, you know, in terms, again, of the narrative, it's it's really taking the pressure off the tangible. Yeah, there's a ton of pressure on him because he basically, you know, has to carry this team right now unless, you know, we're going to see the same, you know, Joe Harris and Blake Griffin from games one and two and not three and four. Durant has to carry the entire load for the for the team right now. But you know what? If they lose the next two or, or two of the next three against the Bucks, no one's going to begrudge Durant anything because I don't think anybody in their right mind expects the Nets to be able to deliver in this spot. Now, I think that this Philadelphia-Atlanta series uh, has the biggest implications for the New York Knicks. That might sound strange when I first say that, but here's why. 
you have a team in the Atlanta Hawks who we got to see firsthand in the first round against the Knicks, and they were a better team all series long. But I think you're seeing in this series, particularly in game four, Atlanta ends up beating Philadelphia to not up the series. Trey Young shoots eight of 25 from the field, but he still facilitates with 18 assists and the Hawks are able to get the win. And the reason why I say this has the biggest implications for the Knicks is because I think you're really starting to see how much of a true need getting a bona fide point guard is not just to knock down a shot from the outside, but to be able to run the offense and facilitate the ball because you see what a team like Atlanta is able to do, even when their best player is shooting less than 33% from the field. So I don't, I, I never saw, a world in which Atlanta would be able to compete without Trey Young scoring the basketball at will, but they've been able to do it against, albeit a compromised Philadelphia team. But if you're in the Knicks brass and you're watching this series, point guard has to be the number one thing on your wish list right now, doesn't it? Yeah, well, listen, if I'm an express and I'm watching this, I want to throw up in my own mouth, okay? Because unlike uh, the Knickerbockers, uh, Philadelphia's defense is not responding like they've never seen a pick and roll in their lives before. Um, so, you know, again, in terms of being series specific, the Knicks compared to what the Sixers are doing in this series, I, obviously, I, I mean, I don't, I'm not trying to pull, pour cold water on your, on your thesis there. I mean, everyone would like a superstar at any position, let alone the most, you know, important on the, on the, on the hardwood. Uh, but that that's a lot easier said than done. I mean, you know, look, we, we, we talked about this at the conclusion of the Knicks-Hawks series. The one thing the Knicks couldn't delude themselves into believing is that they, you know, were right there on the precipice. They were, they were, you know, pushing up against that, that threshold of being a viable contender. And maybe they don't need the necessary huge infusion of talent that was previously believed. No, they need talent. They need a lot of it. And they need it at the, the highest level they could get it at any position on the floor, point guard or otherwise. Now we're sitting on a Zoom call right now, and Rob is sitting in his um, – he's got his little memorabilia room, and there is giant stuff all over the place. But I see Rob right above the television. Obviously, if you're li- when you listen to the podcast, you won't be able to see. But his entire wall is decorated with Mets, Rangers, Giants memorabilia. But there's one open spot – right above the TV there on the top of the wall. And I'm thinking that's where the plaque's going to go that says two-time four-score the podcast trivia champion, Rob Jufre. It's oh, a God, perfect spot, spot to hang again? up right there. It's a perfect <laughs> spot. I mean, it's open. It's like sticking out like a sore thumb. That's that's where that plaque has got to go. Actually, Unless actually, Bruce I, redeems himself tonight. I was actually saving it for my photo, my autograph photo of Bruce Shine. You know, I was yeah, saving I was it for say, him. Let, let me give you something that that's that's worth a little bit more. Find a piece yeah. of toilet paper. I'll sign it for you. You can. Yeah. It <laughs> I wanted to. Uh, I wanted to get to the baseball, Bruce, and I know. Rob is tired of talking about the sticky stuff. We know that MLB sent out a memo. They're going to start cracking down on it. But I think the big story today, as it pertains to the sticky stuff, um, and I am use, use air quotes with sticky stuff, that's been the, the phrase that's been coined here, is that Tyler Glass now, who left his start last night with the Tampa Bay Rays um, with right elbow inflammation, he went for an MRI. It was revealed today that he has a partially torn UCL. They don't they're hopeful that he won't need Tommy John surgery and that he can just rehabilitate and be able to come back. Uh, obviously, Glass now is one of the brightest young pitching stars in the game. So you, it's a bummer when you see a guy go down with an elbow injury like that. But Glass now today went up and in on Major League Baseball's decision to outlaw the sticky stuff midway through the season. Um, essentially admitting it to using it all along, which, you know, you're not going to judge anybody for it because everybody in baseball seems to be using it. But to be so forthcoming about it, and this is a – this is a quote from Glass now. 
He said, uh, I woke up the next day after my last start, and it was like I'm sore in places. I didn't even know I had muscles, and I felt completely different. I switched my fastball grip and my curveball grip. I've thrown it the same way for however many years I've played baseball. I just threw 80-something innings, and now you told me I can't use any substance in the middle of the year. I have to change everything I've been doing the entire season. Everything goes out the window. I had to start something completely new. I'm telling you, I truly believe that's why I got hurt. Me throwing 100 and being 6'7 is why I got hurt, but that also contributed. So he's essentially saying that MLB's decision to crack down on the sticky substances midway through the season is the, the biggest contributing factor in him getting injured. There's two sides of the coin that you can play here. One, you can be mad at the MLB for not deciding to do anything about this until midway through June when we knew that this was an epidemic going through baseball dating back a few years now. Or, I mean, you can flip the coin and turn to glass now and say, hey, you were, you know, willfully breaking the rules for all this time. You have no kick coming when it comes to MLB just choosing to enforce a rule uh, more succinctly that you've been breaking all this time. Uh, what side of the coin do you fall on here, Bruce? Well, can I please start with this? And I know there's only two of them out there, but my condolences to the Tampa Ray fans, uh, because everything we read about the injury scenario with Tyler Glass now is more or less a precursor to Tommy John surgery. Absolutely. All right? we've, we've been fans. All the three of us have been fans for, uh, well, not you, Andrew, you were just born two days ago, but <laughs> three, the, three days the, ago. Yeah, for the rest of us, uh, you know, we, we've seen this script time and again. We've worked in the industry uh, forever. So, uh, listen, I hope I'm wrong, but it, it sounds like, boy, we may not we may not see him till maybe uh, 2023. I, I don't think I have enough empirical evidence, though, that I could deny Glasnow's claim here, nor do I think he's wrong because, yeah, I know the rule's been on the books. I know that Major League Baseball sent out some sort of a memorandum in, in spring training suggesting that they were going to crack down more on this kind of thing. Um, but you know what? That that that's that's kind of paper thin to me. Um, that 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 doesn't wash. I, I think there's some legitimacy to Glasnow's claim. I can't speak to the cause and effect. I I, I just don't have the wherewithal to do that. I, I I don't think I'm in a credible enough position to suggest whether. Um, you know, one thing absolutely had to do with the other, but I, I can buy into the premise that, you know what, if you were going to do this to the level and extent that you are, I, I could see where someone would have some, some big fish to fry here, especially in the predicament that class now uh, finds himself in. I, I really didn't have much of a, of an issue with any of that. Well, yeah, Rob, that, sound, that sounded like weird... a little, it sounded like a little sour grapes. On his part, I mean, come on! You're going to tell me after one start, all of a sudden he's is uh, he's going to need Tommy John surgery? This is probably something that's going to be that was probably wear and tear over a course of time. And he basically stated that he he wasn't using any sort of uh, um, pine tar or anything like that. What he was using was was sunscreen mixed in with 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 the rosin bag, which formed basically a, a pasty sort of liquid that he was able to get a better grip on the ball. So, uh, look, it's a shame. Guy's one of the better pitchers in the league. Um, but I, I, am I going to say that this was caused because of Major League Baseball's decision to, to outlaw any no, sort of No, I mean, how about the other 75 the guys who have had Tommy right. John surgery in the past year and a half? You know, I'm with Bruce. I mean, there, there is no cause and effect that I can see there. The big, the big takeaway from this story for me, though, 
And this is something that I heard Al Leiter say last week when he was on the K show. And it's an interesting line here that I think it, it divides some pitchers from other pitchers. When you hear the sunscreen and rosin mixture, a lot of pitchers are contending that they've been using this concoction to get a better grip on the baseball because Major League Baseball is constantly changing the baseball. And it's different pretty much. Every single ball is pretty much different is what they're telling you. When you hear about the other substance, which is spider tack, that one is not necessarily being used to grip the baseball better. That is sort of being used to weaponize the baseball to increase your spin rate. So the difference between this two sub, these two substances, I think, is an interesting conversation because, you know, are you going to be outlawing the substance because it's an unfair advantage for pitchers? You know, it, it seems like one's being used for one thing, one's being used for another. So I, I, it's a really interesting thing here. How many pitchers are using the tacky substances as a weapon and how many are using them just to get by because the baseball keeps changing? Well, I mean, if you believe what, what we've read here, there could be upwards of 90% of these guys right. using the spider tax. I, I think that's a little generous. I've seen other places where it's more, you know, 40 to 60%, but be that as it may. Just one other thing on glass now, and I see where both of you guys are coming from. And let's face it, this is not a guy that has a pristine uh, injury ledger either, okay? They're, they're, he's had a litany of arm issues. What I'm suggesting is, is that if he suddenly – how to make grand scale concessions with how he was delivering the baseball. And all of a sudden this is the, the subsequent result. I kind of, I kind of see where he's coming from. I agree in all likelihood that there's probably one, one or more means to this particular end here. But I, I do think that, you know, that it, again, this new uh, legislation very well could have had, you know, was a contributing factor and what's happened to glass now. And of, of course, right. I mean, as far as the other you know, side of this argument is concerned, there, there's no question that we gave these guys an inch and they, and they took a mile as, as every era. I mean, they were granted the opportunity to bend the rules by using the sunscreen rosin mix. And all of a sudden they came up with some other subsequent substances that gave them the same desired effect, and then some. This is not up for conjecture. This is not up for debate. This goes back to all the things we've talked about, guys. There are no secrets on the baseball field anymore, okay? It's not uh, It's not sabermetrics. It's not the advanced analytics. It's the technology. We measure every single solitary movement between the white lines on these athletes and on the baseball, and whether it's the Rapsodo pitching machine or uh, some of these other high-tech cameras, we can quantify to the very spin the rate in which the ball twirls. And thus we're in the situation we're in right now where it's become literally impossibly uh, impossible to hit the baseball with any degree of, of regularity. And baseball was, was backed into a corner for us to, to do what they had to do here. And by the way, to the letter, Major League Baseball is absolutely loving this. Not only are they getting their desired effect to get more offense back in the game, but now they have pitted player against player. Oh, and it just so happens that uh, the players' union and management are headed towards uh, Armageddon, World War III, with the, <laughs> with the CBA negotiations coming up in a few months. Well, since, since they made the announcement that they were going to be banning the substances, what was it, about 10 days ago? Batting average... Uh, OPS slugging percentages have all gone up. Yep. Have all gone up. So look, is there, is there, 
something to it? Absolutely. You know, yeah, we I know there's we something just, to it. Yeah, I you know? think we need a little more. And you're right. The, the, all the numbers across the board offensively uh, have gone up, I wouldn't say, to a guard. Well, it's not dramatically, extent, not dramatically, but they've gone up. Right. But we're again, we're only talking about a week, week and a half. So let's let, let's give it a little more time. But hey, listen, you haven't heard any pitchers saying, you know, thank goodness they're cracking down on this stuff. Maybe there's one or two, but <laughs> the vast majority of these guys are like, hey, give me give me that stuff, including the including the poster child for this whole thing, for all extent, for all intents and purposes, Trevor Bauer. Now, look at his last four or five starts. Not real good. Yeah, not good. His not last outing no. lambasted by arguably the worst team in baseball, at least the worst team in the American League, in the Texas Rangers. So be careful what you wish for there. But but again, Bruce, and, and you know, I mentioned it last week. You know, we go back, obviously, you know, to the Gaylord Perry days. And Gaylord Perry even wrote a book called Me and the Spitter. So these guys have been using substances on balls for years. It's nothing different. It is it really. It, does Major League Baseball really have that big a problem on their hands because some guys are putting pine tar on the ball? I, I mean, is that is that the situation? Is that why offensive numbers are down? Or again, is it more about the analytics and the shifts? Well, we it goes know that yet. It goes back to what Bruce said, though, is that the technology is so great now that, yes, you could date this back 40, 50, 60 years with guys using some type of concoction to get a better grip on the baseball. But now with the technology we have where you're able to quantify just how much the ball spins and that you can make the ball spin more with these sticky substances, it went from an aid to get a better grip on the ball to a weapon to make your spin rate go through the roof and make it virtually an unhittable pitch when you throw a curveball and even the fastball, the RPMs on these fastballs gives you the illusion that it's rising without a rise in velocity. I mean, it's, it's, it's like a whole nother layer to the pitcher's game that's being created by these sticky substances. And I think that's where the fine line is. Are you using these substances just to get by because you think the baseball is too slick and it's going to slip out of your hands or are you using it because you're saying, hey, I'm going to spin the crap out of this baseball so no one can hit it? And the the advancements in technology and analytics have kind of taken that inch that the pitchers got by this rule not being enforced and ran a country mile with it, and they hung themselves with the rope. Well, let's, let's put it this way. You know, Bruce, you mentioned the, the collective bargaining agreement next year. Both of you guys are going to ask both of you, gun to your head, you think there's a work stoppage? And I'll tell you what, if there is, baseball's – they're in trouble now. They'll really be in trouble if there's a work stoppage. I don't think there's any question that we're in for a major fight and some semblance of a work stoppage. But uh, I do have it upon good authority, someone who is very, very much a high-ranking official and intertwined with the sports, says it'll never happen, that this commissioner in this climate will never allow that to happen. That's not you coming can't. from me. That, that, that's coming from a – I have very few, if, if any, sources – but this is someone who swears that it just it, it won't come down to that. Actually, that's good to hear. Uh, that is good to hear because they can't look again. If they have a work stoppage, Major League Baseball is done for years. <laughs> you know, they might as well bring steroids back again and Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire. I mean, they're going to be done for years if they have a work stoppage. Rob, you should have a uh, you should have a climate. You should have a jacuzzi date with Don Mattingly and, and get some information on, on how these labor negotiations are going. I don't, I don't think Don Mattingly even cares at this point right now. I mean, look, the, the, the biggest contention is going to be, you know, the, the extra wild card teams, obviously the universal DH. Those are all going to be some points. The, you know, the manipulation you're... of service time is going to be a big contention. Manipulation well, of service look, time. Look, fellas, the, the major bone of contention 
is going to be the payment infrastructure. They're going to have to figure out a way to start paying these guys based on what they're going to do as opposed to what they already have done. We need to start paying the 24 to 28 year olds and stop with the 30 to 33 year olds. That, that, that's going to be, you know, a major issue. Uh, I, I think it's as, as big as, as any they're, they're going to have. I, I don't think either side can be blind to the obvious problems the sport itself has in terms of its entertainment value and, and lack thereof. But yeah, the sticking points, of course, they're all going to be economical and, and none are going to be more at the fore, if you will, than the pay, you know, radically changing the payment infrastructure, uh, you know, as a, of the of the sport as we know it, arbitration, free agency, you know, it's all intertwined with what I just said about having to start paying the young up and coming superstar, as opposed to paying the guy for what we've seen he's accomplished from the back of his baseball card. That has to change. And that uh, I'd be stunned if it didn't. Yeah. Yeah. So there you think, you think, you think they'll also look to increase rosters? Uh, not necessarily. Um, I, I think they're going to reconfigure the rosters. I mean, these are things that we've talked about before, right? The, you know, I, I don't think – I think they want to see how this plays out as far as the crackdown on the substances of, of, of the baseball. But, you know, clearly they suggested some other radical ideas. Uh, you know, you, you touched on the banning of the shifts, the moving the mound down, the moving the mound back. Uh, and then, as I said, again, as far as the rosters are concerned, curtailing the number of pitchers you could have on a, on a given roster. Yeah, I think all these things. I think all these things are in the offing. Again, I, I think you know it, it's great that we're throwing around the particular particulars, guys. But you know, as the old saying goes, those that don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And um, you know, the union has a major axe to grind here. <laughs> they, they got taken. Uh, I'll throw another. I, I haven't thrown enough analogies out of you. Let me throw one more at you. <laughs> they were taken to the woodshed uh, in, in the la in the last negotiation that the players got, you know, destroyed because their union head was was in way over his head. Had no you know business being the chief negotiator in a process. I know Tony Clark. I like Tony Clark. I've worked with Tony Clark. He is as, as upstanding a gentleman uh, as you'd ever want to encounter. But I mean, he was grossly misplaced. In the, in the last negotiations and, and Rob Manfred, you know, totally abused him. So, uh, you know what, the union is going to ask for the sun and the moon. And you know what, if they're even granted that, then they're going to go for the stars just because of how unilaterally and grossly embarrassed they were because of the last deal they negotiated with management. Well, let's see what happens. So we got a little time for that. Uh, Taiwan Walker did a good job getting out of a big first inning jam there for the Mets. They're tied zero zero with the Cubs. Um, you know, you'd like you'd like to think, you know, Robbie, you said that, that uh, you know they have some time. You'd like to believe that those discussions are ongoing now. Well, you would hope, but it seems like they never are, Bruce. Are they? You know, look from from your knowledge over the years and your sources who you've spoken to and whoever it may be. Is there ongoing discussions a year ahead of a of a, a CBA fight? I and I've read where there, there actually have been some preliminary talks between the sides already, but I think it's almost like everything else in life. And and you know, in baseball's defense, they're not the only ones guilty of this. No, but we all you know we all wait for the deadline. You know, okay, the deal's up, but you know, December first, 
you know, talk to me at Thanksgiving. I mean, that that's that that's just the, the, the way of the world. But given the history and all the acrimony that persists here, you would like to think that they'd be smart enough to know they better get a head start on things. Well, that's awesome. that's the way I'm looking at it. You want to try and build up goodwill with the with the with the league major league baseball fans, considering everybody's just starting to fill the ballpark again now after being vaccinated and the climate we've just come out of with the whole pandemic and everything, you would think they'd want to maybe build up some goodwill and maybe by September, October, November, maybe announce the fact that they have come to a new uh, um, CBA. But you know what, though, uh, Rob, you, you kind of you answered your own question before. You said you know, that they're in trouble now. Just wait until the CBA is up. And I think that's part of the problem. If they're in trouble now, I mean, they have so many things that are on their plate right now rather than the, nego- the, the collective bargaining agreement that's not up until the end of the season. So there's bigger fish to fry at the moment. As big as that fish is, which is the looming expiration of the CBA. I mean, there's a lot of things wrong with the sport, a lot of things that they're throwing around, ideas that they're floating out there trying to fix this sport. And until that deadline comes, as Bruce said, they might not want to tackle it. Well, I, here, here, here's where my lack of confidence comes in, fellas. They couldn't come to terms to get out there and play during one of the great natural catastrophes this country has ever endured. And, and they couldn't they couldn't determine which way was up. They, they, they couldn't find a way to, to, you know, get themselves, you know, back on the field in some sort of amenable fashion. I mean, say what you will about that 60 game season and, and how historically we look at it, but that nearly didn't happen because the owners and the players put their selfish needs ahead of the health of a constituency that desperately needed uplifting when a catastrophic pandemic was afflicting this country. Yeah, well, you know what? The, the hopeful side of me thinks that maybe there was a lot of other things on the player's mind besides baseball at that given moment. And now as you know, we got announcement today that there's already 70% of the New York population that's, yeah. uh, that's vaccinated. So you know, one of the states that was as hesitant as any of them to open back up for all intents and purposes, there are no mandates anymore. And we're pretty much like back to normal here. So when it comes time to negotiate the CBA, I mean, we'll be past the pandemic, we'll be under normal circumstances and getting on the field playing and coming to an agreement will be the pinnacle of concern on everyone's mind. So maybe that's wishful thinking on my part, but that's part of the reason why I'm holding out hope. Maybe when they had so much trouble coming to an agreement, it's because baseball was not the primary concern at that moment. We'll see, but wasn't it fun, guys, to watch that game Friday night at City Field with an electric crowd, Jacob DeGrom on the mound, and you actually heard some real fans and not audio. It was, it was great. And it, although, listen, it, they could have they put 33,000 in the park. They got 26,000 in there. But still, look, it, it just – the whole optic, the, the audio was just terrific. It was good to see again. And once again, Jacob DeGrom, I mean, let's segue. Let's go into J- Jacob DeGrom right now. I mean, look, he had to come out of that game early. He had a little flex of tendonitis, he said he always deals with. But, you know, Bruce, I know you posed a question in, in our little email talking points you give us about, you know, the, the type of historic season we might be looking at here with Jacob DeGrom. And I'm completely in lockstep with you, and I've said this before. You can't compare him to the Pedro Martinez, Pedro Martinez and – the Kurt Schillings and the Randy Johnsons going even going all the way back to see, but Gibson Carlton, whatever it may be a Greg Maddox, because they don't, they don't pitch enough. They just don't pitch enough. Now, as good as Jacob DeGrom has been again, he comes out the other day after six innings, 
a couple of weeks ago, it was it was the lat. So, you know, you probably see, see Jacob DeGrom maybe throw 175 innings. I don't know if he's going to get to the 200-inning mark. So, to me, it, I'm not going to put an asterisk next to a season no. if, this continu- uh, if this continues. No, I'm not saying it that, but you have to kind of put things in perspective and realize that as great of a season it, it looks like he's having, these other guys have done it, and they've done it where they've pitched 250 innings, where they had 35 starts, where they had 20 complete games, and that's not Jacob DeGrom. Well, his little bumps and bruises aside, I mean, he's had a couple of injury issues already first couple of months of the season. I mean, it's going to be very interesting for everybody, let alone when we're talking about the preeminent talent at his position in the sport right now, how these guys are going to be dealt with after such a light workload in in 2020. Uh, Yes, again, I, I think that, you know, from a, uh, again, to, to, to go back to the, the whole narrative thing. Yeah. And, you know, Bob Gibson, 1.12 ERA in 1968, year of the pitcher, threw 305 innings. Now, Pedro Martinez in his 99 and 2000 otherworldly years, you know, he was up anywhere from, from 205 to 220. And in a normal season, DeGrom would easily get there. But you also have to keep in mind, Pedro Martinez did it in the height of the steroid era in the American League East, uh, and, and specifically against a couple of the greatest Yankee teams of all time who we continued to shove it down their throat. So, I, I mean, as far as the overall picture is concerned, when we start talking about greatest of all time, those are the types of things that work against DeGrom. But, I mean, take it from somebody who is not a Met fan or a Met apologist by any stretch of the imagination – that you you watch this and and you 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 can't digest it. You just you can't make sense of it. It, it is he is so otherworldly better than everybody and anybody else. And it's not just this year. I I think the history here matters. This has been going on for four or five years now. It, it's just it's it's absolutely majestic. I'm not I'm not even sure it gets the acclaim it deserves here in New York now. That's not because of him necessarily. That that's because of the issues I think everybody has with the sport itself and how it's kind of the interest has kind of waned across the board, even in a baseball crazed region as we are here in the Northeast. And I know he's not the most charismatic and energetic, enthusiastic, you know, uh, you know, character there is in the game, and maybe that works against him as well. But from a performance standpoint, seen anything like this. I shouldn't say that, you know, Randy Johnson was doing it. But when you're comparing, I mean, that's what we're doing here, guys. <laughs> we're talking about Pedro Martinez. We're talking about Randy Johnson. We're talking about inner circle, legendary Hall of Famers. That's what we're seeing with Jacob DeGrom. And, and I, it just, it just doesn't feel, I don't get the sense that it's getting the notoriety that it deserves. Well, again, it's, it's because he, he didn't, they don't, they don't throw enough. 95, 95 pitches, you're out of the game. Six innings, you're out of the game. They, they, they don't have that sort of longevity in a game that these other guys that we've mentioned had in the past, and that's part of the problem, I think. But, look, he's still getting recognized, Jacob DeGrom. They already have him as the, as the odds-on favorite to win the MVP. We're way ahead of ourselves with that right now. I mean, and also, you look at him up at the plate, the guy's hitting 400, I think. He has got he's has more RBIs than he has given up earned runs. Five which RBIs is amazing. four earned runs. To four earned runs, which is simply amazing. And I love what James McCann said about him a couple of weeks ago. He goes, Jacob DeGrom 
not only wants to embarrass you, but after he embarrasses you, he wants to rip your soul out. And boy, oh boy, that's a pretty yeah. heavy statement. <laughs> you know what? All that being said, I'm, I'm, I'm giving DeGrom a start off. I'm not pitching him tomorrow. Uh, I, well, I, he's I pitching. He's in lead. line. He's, well, he was taking – Bruce, he was taking ground balls yesterday, turning three, six, three double plays in practice. Um, I'm, I'm erring it's on crazy. the side of caution. I'm, 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 I'm skipping him one turn. I'm sorry. I think I, they I, erred I, on the side of caution when they took him out the other night. You know what? That's what they're going to do, Bruce. I think that their plan of attack this season is just going to hope that he goes six innings. He throws anywhere from 75 to 85 pitches. He has a two- to three-run lead, and they're going to play it safe and just preserve bullets because – not only is that the nature of baseball, but when you have a pitcher pitch into the level that he wants to, that's, let's be honest, he is in his upwards of 30 now. I mean, he doesn't nearly have the wear and tear that guys like Clayton Kershaw and Madison Bumgarner, who are of similar age, but have way more innings pitched. But listen, this is a guy who's had arm trouble before. Um, he's had some bumps and bruises along the way. He's had Tommy John surgery way back in his time in the minor league. So he's gotten that out of the way. But uh, Luis Rojas said as much that, they trust Jacob DeGrom and Jacob DeGrom in between every start. He said he does these ligament tests. He's with the trainers working diligently. He said he knows what ligament damage and he knows serious from not serious when it comes to an injury. And this is just something that he's dealt with in the past. So I don't think they're going to skip him. I think they're going to trust the player. Uh, but I think that's going to be their plan of attack all season. They're going to have him go six. They're going to put him on a pitch limit and just hope that the Mets are victorious when they, or at least looking like they're going to be victorious when they take him out of the game. Well, just as importantly, they could also sell the idea of the lighter workload to him, protecting him from himself, not just because of his personal injury history, but again, the unique circumstances of this season with, you know, what kind of innings jump do we want to or, you know, allow for these pitchers, given the fact that they threw as infrequently as they have in recent memories, at least if you're a veteran guy as uh, as was the case in 2020. Well, this limiting DeGrom's workload would be a hell of a lot easier if Noah Syndergaard and Carlos Carrasco were healthy. Well, well, you can forget uh, Syndergaard. They already said Syndergaard. September 1st at the earliest. And I don't think you'll see Syndergaard probably maybe mid-September. And again, he's coming back into the bullpen. He's not coming back as a starter right now. Listen, listen fellas, I know you don't want to hear it because you're Mets fans and you're perennially waiting for that proverbial other shoe to drop, but you got to play this one in the scoreboard. The Mets have a very healthy lead in their division right now. And let, let's do some scouting around that NL East landscape. Who's pushing this team? I'm not trying to make the Mets out to be the 86 Mets. I don't think they're a juggernaut by any stretch of the imagination. I don't have faith in any of these other teams. Forget about Washington, Miami. They're already gone. Well, you know what, Bruce? They'd have an even more healthy lead if your Bronx Bombers could take care of business against the Philadelphia Phillies over the weekend. Uh, they, listen, right now they they they, they couldn't beat the uh, you know Scranton Rail Riders, <laughs> uh, you know th th this Yankees lot. But you know, I said I've seen plenty of the Phillies, and listen, it's not the Mets have got a, a great chance to even further what's already a pretty healthy lead. You know, the Phillies are out there on the West Coast taking on the Dodgers, who are, as we know, baseball's best, and then the the biggest surprises of this season so far and the giants after that. So uh, they, they could even put more real estate between them and their closest oncomers, uh, you know, in the division. And I, I think that, yeah, the, the Mets have to, you know, take that kind of realistic approach 
uh, as they proceed here the rest of the way, you know, again, as does everybody else. But boy, I mean, if there's ever a year where you'd want to be ha- have that ability to slow play things down the stretch of the season, 2021 is it. And right now, that really has, you know, it looks to be playing in the Mets' favor in a huge way, the way things are looking at this point. I, I tell you, I, I've heard the narrative with the Yankees now that, you know, listen to sports talk radio, whatever stations you listen to, whether it be Sirius or WFAN or whatever it may be. And you hear Yankee fans, they got to blow it up. They got to blow it up. They got to blow it up. If they lose, they got to blow it up. My question to you guys is, what the hell are they going to blow up? What are you blowing up? You know, what, what kind of dramatic moves are you going to make? You're not trading Stanton's contract. That's not happening. You're not going to be trading Aaron Judge. That's not happening. What are you going to do, release Brett Gardner? You're not getting rid of Aaron Hicks. That's not happening with that contract. You're not going to be getting rid of Gleyber Torres or DJ LeMahieu. So where are you blowing this whole roster up? You're not blowing it up, but they have some attractive commodities in their bullpen with Chapman and, and Britain. Uh, and if the Yankees deem themselves out of it and they're looking to, you know, for huge returns for years going forward, those are two very, very attractive pieces for would-be contenders, whether it's Philadelphia, whether it's Toronto, San Diego, the Dodgers. Are you telling me they wouldn't move heaven and earth to get their mitts on a Chapman or Britain down the stretch? Now, both of them have a year left on their contract after this season, and they're not cheap. They're both eight-figure guys. Right. But, yeah, they they have some um, big, high-level, you know, large-scale things they can do. But, yeah, in terms of, uh, you know, what they could do as far as their everyday roster is concerned, it's, it's, there's, there's nothing of any, any kind of great consequence there. And for what it's worth, I listened to an interview with Cashman about an hour and a half ago. Um, you know, we could talk about it till we're blue in the face, but right now uh, the Yankees are all in and Brian Cashman made no bones about it. And the question wasn't even posed to him. He offered it. It's, he said, it's on me to change this roster and get in here what we need. I'm paraphrasing, but that, that doesn't, you know, that, that's the chief decision maker. He, he, he talked about how he has the full backing of ownership. So again, I'm not anticipating See, I, anything I happening on a large scale anytime I, soon. I don't, I don't buy that. I, I don't I, buy I don't, it either. I'm Listen, I, you, you've heard me two weeks ago. I told you Boone and Cashman are gone. If they don't make the playoffs, this team, they're gone. It's, it's a really, Look, I understand it's the same sort of roster construction they've had over the last few years that that generated the 95 and 100 win teams and got them to, you know, uh, uh, AL championship games. And But it, there's a failure now, and you're starting to see it, that if, again, this team don't hit home runs, they don't win. They can't hit. And hitting home runs it's, is not something that you can just flip the switch and start doing. I mean, these, these are well, that's what they've done. These Speaking are tr- home runs. These, Javi yeah, Baez, Javi Baez just, went just went yard. Yeah, these are yep. these are wholesale changes need to be made. And to be to be quite honest with you, looking at the Yankees as they sit here right now, I mean, they're in fourth place in a division that has a pretty good chance of maybe having three representatives in the postseason. Um, ultimately, I was not on the Toronto bandwagon. That offense has turned out even better than I thought, and the pitching is not as bad as I thought it was going to be. They're a competitive team. The Red Sox don't seem like they're pretenders. They seem like a good team, and the Rays somehow, some way. I mean, they're 15 games over 500 even after they lost guys in the offseason. But listen, 
Yankees find themselves in a nine game deficit in this division right now in a division that has three teams ahead of them that could all be wild card. You know, two of them could be wild card teams and they have a three game series coming up with the Toronto Blue Jays. If they get swept by the Blue Jays right now, that, that would be the equivalent of them signing their death certificate. And if Cashman fully had the full backing of ownership, they would have no problem with blowing it up to whatever extent that they could. You know, dangling a guy like Torres, maybe seeing what you can get, dangling those guys in the bullpen. But if he said today, which he did, I mean, he was he was spoke with the media before and he said that they were all in and they were going to be exploring all possibilities to better the roster and get the team on the right track. That reeks to me like a guy who is just going to try anything possible to try to save his ass. That That's what that sounds like to me. Yeah, my takeaway from the backing of ownership comment was that he has the wherewithal to exceed that tax threshold if he so desires. And that's been a major bone of contention here. And the Yankees are about $4 million under that 210 mark right now. Uh, I could be wrong. That was my read on it. And, Robbie, I, I do agree with you. I, I think the important caveat to add to all this, too, is this is not just a 2021 thing here, guys. They were 33 and 27 last year. So this stretch of mediocrity is now, you know, well past, uh, you know, 120 some odd games now. That is a, a huge sample size. Uh, you know, but on the other side of the coin is, yeah, I saw this in 2005. I saw this in 2007. And in October, it was, it was all water under the bridge. So you can look at it from, from either angle. You know, and I, and I know I mentioned this to you guys in our, uh, you know, pre-podcast uh, meeting, if you will. So suppose the Yankees take the incredible inordinate measure and decide to become sellers, which the last time they did was 2016. And prior to that was, I don't know what, the early part of the 20th century? <laughs> it was. I mean, they've had 27, 28 straight years of winning records. Right. And because it go back to 92. So I, I, I looked into it. I, you know, I, I felt, you know, from a from a subjective standpoint, well, what's the difference between this and 2016? Well, in 2016, you know, you had A-Rod and Teixeira retiring. You already had Luis Severino break onto the scene. Gary Sanchez had a historic second half. You had Judge come up. You had, uh, uh, I'm, I'm, forgetting, I'm forgetting another piece, oh, Greg Bird, you know, at the time. So they had these young and up-and-coming core pieces. The Yankees don't have anything resembling that right now. They have a decent no. farm system, but they don't have blue chip type type talent on the immediate horizon. And that, you know, that's the, the big difference as far as, you know, looking at where they are as a, as an organization, as a whole, they were in a far more fortuitous spot in 2016 than they are now. And as far as the standings are concerned, listen, at the trade deadline, 2016, they were a 500 team. They were seven games back are the first place team in the division. So, I mean, they're not that far off from that where they stand right now. And they have six weeks to go until the trading deadline. But and in terms of the more important part of this equation, talent on hand, and more importantly, talent forthcoming, where they can afford to take a miniature step back before taking two steps forward, they're not in nearly the same spot as they were five years ago. 
Well, one thing you got to remember too, Bruce, is not only does this glass now injury have big implications on the Rays, especially if it is what we think and it's a precursor to Tommy John surgery, but also when you bring up the fact that the Yankees do not have these blue chip prospects, you got to remember the Tampa Bay Rays are a team that does. So in the event that the Yankees do want to get better, and even the Mets for that instance, I mean, if, you, if you're looking at the Mets right now, it looks like they may want to try to get another starting pitcher. Um, well, they, they did pick up Nick Trapiano from the uh... – yeah, Angels, but I mean but that's nothing. But if, he, if they're going to be in the market to get a bigger, if, he, if they're going to be in the market to get another starting pitcher, the Tampa Bay Rays have the ammunition to be able to outbid anybody, and now they have a glaring need for a starting pitcher. So, listen, the Rays are not going to allow the Yankees to swoop someone up to try to get better if the Rays see it fit to do so because they have more ammunition to do it. So that injury does have a lot of implications on a lot of different teams throughout the league and just makes the obstacles even even higher to climb for the Yankees to try to make some kind of a move to get back in this thing. Nine games out on June the 15th is not a spot that anybody foresaw the Yankees being in. Me and Rob have been talking since the beginning of this podcast about how we did not think that the Yankees team was built to win a championship with the construction. But I, I didn't foresee them being this bad and being this far out. And you see a lot of fans. I know we live in New York. Fans overreact at every little thing. But you're seeing a lot of people now that are saying that the Yankees are unwatchable. They not, are? Only that, not only that they're losing games and it's frustrating, but you have fans saying that it is unwatchable baseball. Yeah, that no one could have saw coming. In, in fairness to that remark, as, as 50 years of watching Yankee baseball – I've never heard of a losing Yankee team that were depicted as anything else but unwatchable. So, I mean, I kind of take that with a grain of salt. Um, just to go back to your point on, on the Rays for a second, not only do they have more, far more wherewithal to make the big acquisition, so do the Blue Jays. Mm-hmm. The Blue Jays. And the Blue Jays are scarier because they not only do they have the blue chip prospects – on hand to make the kind of deal, but they have the financial resources as well to make that happen. And I'm sorry, guys, he's sticking out like a big sore thumb right now. I know he's on the IL, but it's not considered a major injury. No, but Max sure Scherzer could very yeah. well be on the move here. And if no you don't doubt. think that he's not a perfect fit in either Toronto or now, especially with the Glasgow scenario in Tampa and those, and those rotations, uh, and then I got some waterfront property in uh, you know, in the Sahara Desert to sell. But see that—that's where I, you know, we, I spoke about this uh, a couple of weeks ago, and you've seen the Nationals are floundering right now. So it it makes sense, in my opinion, if you trade Scherzer earlier, weeks before the trading deadline, because at least a team could get more starts out of him that are in contention right now. Yeah. So it makes sense. You'll get a heck of a lot more for him and. I tell you what, look, the Nationals are another team right now that needs a little bit of a, a rebuild. I mean, they have some pieces there with Turner and Soto, obviously, but Strasburg has been known to, to be injured. He's been injured this year since he signed the contract. He's been hurt. Again, Scherzer, uh, I don't think they're resigning Scherzer anyway. Cor- Corbin's pitching to a 70 RA this season. Yeah, Corbin's just been horrendous. So they they definitely need to tweak their roster and I tell you the truth, there's a lot. Even the Mets could use a Max Scherzer, but they'll never trade him to the Mets. That's not going to happen unless the Mets give him a haul. But I don't know what the Mets really have sitting there in the minor leagues anyway to pick up a Max Scherzer. Oh, so, I agree yeah. with you. That, 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 that interdivision trade won't, won't happen. But I do think that the Nationals 
probably feel real good about their chances of doing what the Yankees did with Chapman in 2016. That's letting him go, a pending free agent, and then re-upping him, uh, you know, after the season. I, I don't think that's an impossibility by any stretch of the imagination. You know, we always talk, guys, about, you know what, jump the gun on the trade deadline. Why don't these teams be more proactive? You get these guys for more games. The bottom line is the reason we see more activity up and around the trade deadline is obviously – there's more suitors at that time. There are more teams ready to either declare themselves in or out. And the bidding subsequently, you know, goes higher because of that. So I, I, while I agree with your premise, Rob, that there's a reason that we hardly ever see trades of that magnitude happen. I know, but Bruce, when it comes to a starter, it doesn't make sense to me. If you're a team and you know you don't have enough to contend, okay, it doesn't make sense to me that you want you would not try and put them out on the market now and go out and say, all right, we are putting Max Scherzer on the market, open bidding right now. Give us your best offers. Let's go. Because a team, again, this is only June. Why wait until the end of July or August in order to make that trade when you can get another eight starts out of him probably? All right, well, let me, let me present this argument to you. And I don't disagree with you. Right. But that's a tough pill to ask that fan base to swallow, given that two years ago they started 19-31 and 31 and ended up – championship team no doubt but that doesn't happen often no well, you gotta rem you gotta remember too you gotta remember too there's a lot of time between now and the trade deadline and so teams although they might want to get as many starts as possible out of a starting pitcher that they're trying to acquire there's also a lot of time for them to potentially fall out of the race so sure. there's a lot of teams that still could be pretenders and these next three, four weeks will be telling. You don't want someone, you know, pulling the trigger prematurely on a trade when by the time July 31st comes around, they're still sitting at 500. And they're like, well, shit, we wouldn't have made this trade if we would have just waited. I mean, guys, Pittsburgh, Baltimore, Colorado, Arizona. I mean, who, who other than that is declaring themselves out now? I, I mean, that's a, it's just it's, it's a little too early. It, it's well, just it's too early for that. Now, I wanted I to go. I wanted to go back to something quick, Bruce, just to, you know. If the Yankees are to try to pull a trade off to, to get better, well, I mean, what is what the do most they have? What is there? The, well, what, not even that. What's the most pressing need? They need pitching. They need a bat. They need people who can run the bases and field their position. I mean, they hold, they need a whole bunch. That's why I wouldn't understand trying to acquire talent because they have so many needs that one trade is not going to do it. I mean, you look back at 2015 with the Mets, right? They needed a big bat. They went out and got Cespedes, and it turned around the trajectory of the whole season. To me, there's no piece out there, regardless of the position, that's going to flip the switch and turn the Yankees into a contender overnight. I, I just don't see it. You're absolutely right, but I don't think that precludes Cashman from going out there and doing a couple of things. And, I, I'm, and I'm, uh, I'm sure he realizes that he's uh, you know, not going to change the course of the season for that team. By making one move of consequence, it's going to take a number of moves. And look, you got to be you got to be smart about it. I mean, I'm not waving the white flag just yet either. But uh, but at the same time, uh, I'm not ready to move, you know, heaven and earth to make all these, you know, high level moves that we're talking about right now you know, to make a, a bad situation worse. I'm, not, I'm just not willing to do that. At some point, you have to self scout, look at where you are what team you have, where you are in the standings. And let me tell you something else. It wouldn't hurt to take a wide-eyed look at the future of this division. Rays aren't going anywhere anytime soon. The Blue Jays are, if they're not here, they're certainly on the come. I mean, 
this is going to be a tough road to hope great, for the Yankees. That's a great point. It's a great a while. point. I didn't mention it's, the Red Sox. Here's the one thing about the Red Sox. Yeah, I almost look at the Red Sox, the Giants in the same vein. That while if I'm a I'm enthused if I'm a fan of either of those franchises, but they're not grossly overachieving. They're they're not they haven't reached the heights that they have based on what they've done with these young, inspiring, out-of-nowhere kids. They're, they're still kind of doing it with the same old group. Now, I'm not, I'm not wise enough to speak to what they have percolating underneath in their, in their farm systems. But, you know, if, if you told me that the, you know, the Red Sox and uh, Giants were going to return to the mean in, in 2022, I wouldn't raise an eyebrow. But you, you could see the uh, dynamics at play with teams like Tampa and Toronto and you know, you're a complete and utter fool. If you don't think yeah, I, that they're here now and they're only going to get better. I tell you, now that you talked about the Red Sox, you know, look, I mean, how much of a difference you think Alex Cora made coming back to manage that team. And when you look at that, then you also look at Tony LaRusa coming back to manage the White Sox after 10 years of not managing at all. He comes back to manage the White Sox. The White Sox have lost Jimenez. They lost Robert. Now they just lost Madrigal. They've lost some of their younger guys. And I tell you, I, I saw you pumping your fist, Andrew. Yeah. You must have been a little bit ahead of me. Oh, yeah. I just man. seen the yeah, two-run single. Two-run single, yeah. Yeah, all right, good. But, you know, you look at the managers now. I mean, how much of a difference did these two guys make in both their teams? Well, you know, I'm not a big manager guy. Uh, I, I think when, you know, push comes to shove, we're talking about 2 3% of the games in a given season a baseball manager impacts. Uh, I'm not going to sit here and play the fool and tell you that Alex Cora hasn't had any impact on there. I, I think the Red Sox have mostly grossly underachieved. Um, and then they've returned to minimum where they should be. Uh, I shouldn't say that. That's not fair either. They, they have overachieved because their pitching has been, has been very good this year. Um, how much I want to attribute that to the guy calling the shots in the dugout. I, again, I, it's not just a Red Sox thing or a core thing. That's just where I am with, as far as managers and baseball are concerned. Same thing with, with the with the White Sox. It's not like the White Sox were some, you know, also ran and uh, have decided to, you know, and all of a sudden overnight become this uh, sensational juggernaut because of the guy in the dugout. Um, you know, that that's a product of what they had already been building towards and again, having the benefit of just playing in beyond a laughable division again. Uh, I think we've been saying that for the last five, six years. So uh, I, I'm just, I have a hard time equating the import and the impact of the baseball manager, especially when we talk about these things with regards to the other two majors in the NBA and the NFL. It's, it's apples to oranges. When you bring up the manager, I'm, I'm actually glad you brought that up because I wanted to ask you this question and get your opinion on it. And I think I probably know your answer is going to be based on what you just said. But there's a lot of different opinions out there about Luis Rojas. A lot of people out there suggesting that the Mets are a potential juggernaut that are being held back by an inexperienced manager. And there's also other people that are uttering the sentiment that, hey, what he's done with all the injuries this team has had is nothing short of spectacular. And it speaks to something that he's doing with the way he's keeping that locker room together. Well, well, what did he do to the locker room when the team couldn't qualify for an eight-team playoff field in, in 2020? I it's, mean, the same manager, it's the same manager. And you saw one of the biggest blunders, uh, uh, the way he managed the game on Sunday against the San Diego Padres. And I, I don't know, you know, for those of you who didn't see it, 
Uh, obviously, the Mets are up 2-1 in a ball game. Brings out Jerry's, Jerry's familiar for the sixth inning. Has trouble, gets into a jam, works himself out of it. 21 pitches, I believe he threw in a sixth inning. Brings Familia back out for the seventh inning, who then gets himself into trouble again. Ends up walking the bases loaded. He's at this point 41 pitches deep into his outing. More pitches than he's ever thrown in his big league career. Uh, keeps him in to face Tommy Fan with the bases loaded. Ends up walking in the tying run. Then proceeds to bring in Jacob Barnes to face Fernando Tatis with the bases loaded. And Tatis proceeds to hit a 460-foot moonshot into the second deck for a grand slam to put the Padres up 6-2. And then we hear from Rojas after the game that his bullpen was extremely shorthanded and he didn't have Miguel Castro. He didn't have Aaron Loop. He didn't have Seth Lugo. He didn't have Edwin Diaz, which is all well and good. But that would lead me to believe that instead of pushing Familia to two innings, then how about you push your starting pitcher in extra inning instead of taking him out after 66 pitches in his best outing of the season? So it just seems like they locked them. He locks himself into this plan before the game starts, and he is just completely unable of managing on the fly. And we know that managing on the fly is a rarity nowadays because any everything is mapped out analytically. But God, you just need a manager to have a feel for the game because I mean. This dates back to my baseball playing days. My coach always used to say, here's the plan. Before the game, he would always say, this person's starting, this person's coming in for relief. That's the plan, but plans change. That was his key phrase, but plans change. And when kids used to get jacked out of shape, hey, you told me I was pitching and you didn't bring me in. He goes, because plans change. The game unfolded in a way that I didn't think it was going to go, so plans change. But yet at the big league level, this is not what happened. It, it's it's mind-boggling. So here's you, a question. Here's guys- a question. Here's a question for both you guys. If Louis Rojas were to get fired tomorrow morning after this game, would anybody be shocked? Would the yes. fan base be shocked? Yes. You'd be, you'd be shocked. Shocked, yes. You'd say, oh, my God, I cannot believe they fired <laughs> I would. Rojas. I would be shocked. I, I, I would be, tomorrow I would, morning, if he got, if he got fired, uh, upwards of 10 games over 500 with a near double-digit lead in first place and players that swear by him, yeah, I would be stunned. Would you? I'd be sh- I'd be shocked, Rob, that they pulled the trigger and did it. I would not be shocked, you know, that the reasoning behind him getting fired. We know he's right. not a big league manager, but then right. doing it, considering the situation that the Mets are in, eight games over 500, you know, they're winning in spite of Rojas is basically what I'm saying here. It's not there. They are not here because of Luis Rojas. You could say whatever you want. Yeah, maybe the guys in the locker room like him. And yes, it's great that they've been able to stay afloat with all these injuries. But it is not Luis Rojas is doing. And anybody who tries to give me that nonsense, it just does not know the sport of baseball. They're uh-huh. winning because they're. it's just momentum is in their favor. Unlikely heroes taking the underdog mentality. You know why they're winning, Rob? The human element of baseball. They're taking this underdog mentality and they're running with it something that you can't quantify you can't punch into a computer and get a definitive number they are winning on the human element and the human element alone that's yeah, why they're but, winning. but again you know again i want to slow roll this this great character laden overachieving bunch again this was the same team that inexplicably just spit the bit last year in grotesque fashion that what happened last season with the same group of guys is was inexcusable all right we're not talking about three or four years ago we're talking about recent history here and and again just to further the the whole point on firing rojas you know tomorrow let's take some inventory here the last two years they fired a manager they hired before he managed a major league game they had to fire a general manager whom they hired before he general managed a regular season game so again the net the man 
the last thing the Mets are talking about doing is taking a guy that has this resume in 2021 and sending him adrift. Now, okay, we could point to, you know, his machinations with what he did with Lucchese. I don't know how far they could push Lucchese. I know he had been a bullpen guy all year and how they ultimately used Familia for upwards of 40 pitches or whatever it was. They had the David Peterson thing. I remember from that instance in, in Tampa, you know, early in the year. When you guys get a chance, peruse the internet. Go go through the uh, the local scribes in, in Chicago and, and read what they're putting down on uh, about Tony La Russa and how he's utilized his pitching staff this year. I mean, you know, it, it's, it's crazy. It, it's damned if you do, damned if you don't. My, the bottom line is, LaRusso is a first bound Hall of Fame guy. You know, none of these guys are, are, are above or beyond reproach. They're all going to get criticized for moves here and there. But ultimately, you, you, you're going to be judged on, on the big picture stuff. I can understand if you have some concerns about what may lay ahead, you know, for maybe important pennant race type games and or, you know, in October, which the Mets will <laughs> – I'd be stunned if they if they were playing and you want to tell me that you know you you have some issues there. I, I could buy your concern, but he he's not the least bit of a worry. If you're worried about Luis Rojas right now, you're looking for things to be scared to be scared about. I, I just think that's off base, Bruce, because we're, we continuously see monumental mistakes. And it's not your typical damned if you do, damned if you don't, because that always happens with managers, right? They make a move, it doesn't work, they're the scapegoat. That's how it works. But in the moment, you don't even have to be a baseball savant to know what Rojas is doing just defies all logic. It's not like he's rolling the dice and it's not coming back with a favorable hand. I mean, he is making monumental mistakes. And the concern is that once the games increase in magnitude in the middle of a pennant race, that he could be costing you games. I think it's a valid concern. I'm not suggesting ship him out of town right now. It even, you know, it, that's not necessarily what I'm suggesting, but it, it is scary to think about this guy having to manage a ball club that's got World Series aspirations hey, when listen, it's abundantly he, clear the game is moving way too quick for him. Exactly. He's, he's and that's my Gil, problem. He's not Gil Hodges and Casey Stengel yet, but he's got an enormous pedigree. He's more than paid his due. Dues, he's got, he comes from a, a baseball rich family, family. playing yeah. managers, the lose. Uh, I'm not, I'm not, if I'm a Met fan, I'm sorry. I'm not, I'm not overly concerned about Luis Rojas as far as where things stand right now. I tell you last night, I'm watching the broadcast and Gary Cohen brought it up and I knew that he had a big contract, but I, I didn't realize it was this big. Jason Hayward somehow finessed 8 million, uh, eight years, $180 million out of the Chicago Cubs. And Rob, can we agree on this? I'm not doing this to poke fun at you, but can we agree Jason Hayward is essentially like a, a, a tad bit better version of Jackie Bradley Jr. Probably. I mean, think about think about we, all the and think Jackie about Bradley, all the fanfare. Jackie about Bradley all the Jr. wanted three years, thirty-six million dollars, and we were saying that's a gross overpay. Why would you give a guy that much money? And Jason Hayward somehow got eight years, one hundred eighty million. That because is Hayward, Jason asinine. Hayward came up with all the accolades. First at bat, hits a bomb home run, and he came up as an all-world. Offensive player can't miss pretty much in a brave organization. They were talking about him for a few years, and whatever happened, happened. I mean, you know who he's a, you, he's, Kuchi, he's a career the, 250 hitter. He's got 150 home runs in 11 he, years. He always he, looks to pot. 
But he's an analytical darling. What's his war? Andrew? Right. You got his numbers up there. Give me his war. I don't. I actually. I was looking oh, at his numbers last. No, I was I looking at his numbers really last night. I was looking at his numbers last oh, night. I memorized that he had a two fifty no, that, average. That's, that that's why he got paid. He's a war child. Yeah. Well, he's because he's got the gold gloves. He's yeah. Got, I think he's, he's got four he's four got, gold yeah, gloves in the an, outfield. He, he he's an analytical darling. That's that's why he got paid. Unreal. Um. Hmm. Oh, did he get and, he gave, and he gave that great speech during the rain delay in Game Seven. Uh, the 2016 World Series, the Cubs ended up winning their first championship in a gazillion years. So he's earned every cent. <laughs> yeah, and now he's hitting 150 this year, I think, Jason Hayward, who just flies out again. Um, all right, I have a, uh, I have a question tonight that I think is, is right up both of you guys' alley. Um, Rob is 2-1 and one oh. over the past three weeks, looking to make it 3-1. and one. Bruce desperately looking for a rebound. Uh, do you have your thinking hat on tonight, Bruce? Are you ready? The, the scary part of that is I had my thinking on the last two weeks that did we a damn bit of good. <laughs> okay. Tonight's category, short one, only 10 guys on this list. Oh, Jesus. It is the New York Giants career sack leaders, the top 10 career sack leaders in New York Giants history. There's So the top 10 guys on this list. Bruce, you started it off last week, so I want Rob to start oh, it off this I week. Should get, I should get the first two cracks, and Rob should go third, and I get the next two. <laughs> Rob, top <laughs> ten sack leaders in New York Giants history. Start us off. All right, I'm going to go with Justin Tuck. Justin Tuck All is. All these easy ones for Bruce. Justin That's, Tuck is number six. You know what? I don't need your charity. I don't need your pity. So you could stick Lawrence Taylor up your you-know-what. How <laughs> dare you insult me when that question is posed and your first offering is just – I love Justin. I just talks it in more. I love Justin Tuck, yeah. Well, come on. I love him. You're, 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 you're patronizing me by not offering him. up Lawrence Taylor. I'm, I'm no longer on speaking terms with him. Andrew, you speak to me. I'm not talking to him. <laughs> Lawrence Taylor is number two. My next one will be O.C. Umanora. O.C. Umanura is number four on the list. That was a good, that was a, that was a Chris Russo-like pronunciation there. Not bad. Michael Strahan. Michael Strahan is numero uno on this list. Uh, see, Rob, I, he's number one. You see, I'm telling you right now, if you look at your Zoom, I'm telling you you're number one. I got to go, you know. What, could, I, could I ask one quick question? What year did they start registering sacks? What year was that? I don't know what year it was, but I looked at all these guys in their career stats here, and I think the earliest that any of one of these guys has played was the mid seventies, is when he first came into the league. So no, like okay, ridiculously so, old time players. So it goes. So oh, there aren't any. No ridiculously old time players. I think the earliest that any of these guys came into the league might have been nineteen seventy six, if I'm not mistaken. I would, I would have yeah, you offer because I was going to say my, my next my next one would be John Mendenhall. Okay, yeah, that's why I had asked. All right, so all right, so all right, so I've won this round. Hallelujah! Let the streamers and the balloons fall from the rafters. <laughs> Can I offer one more? This I'm curious to see if you because my next guest was going to be George Martin. Is he on that list? Martin, George, be up George there, Martin yeah. is number eight. Yes. Yeah, he he's up there. Was. No, I don't think Banks would be up there. Banks really wasn't much of a pass rusher. Carl Banks is number 10. Oh, Banks is 10. I was going to say Banks, 10. but when you said around 76, I said, all right, that's right around Mendenhall's, because this is episode 64, 
And who did I mention? You mentioned him before the show. I told you John, John Mendenhall. He was yes. one of my favorite guys. Yes. Harry That's Car- why I had Harry said Carson on that list? I don't think no. Carson would be on there. No, no. No, the rest of the guys on this list. Number three was Leonard Marshall. Leonard Marshall. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Number five, defensive tackle Keith Hamilton. Wow, Hamilton, huh? That surprised yeah, hammer. me. Hammer. Hamilton Numbers, surprised me. Number seven. None How many did than, Hamilton have, Andrew? Um, oh. I have the list up. Give me one second. Hamilton had 63 sacks. Wow. He had hmm. three and a half more than Justin Tuck. Hmm. Wow. Um, number seven on this list, who I thought some one of you guys might have mentioned, but you didn't. Jason Pierre-Paul. Pierre-Paul. Number nine, which is a name that shocked me. Short tenure giant, I thought. Maybe he played a little longer than I thought. But uh, Matthias Kiwanuka. Kiwanuka. Number nine you know, on this I, list. I, I yeah, you know you. what? The one, the one sack he didn't get was one of the most painful I've seen in my life. Remember yeah. that game in Tennessee? Oh, God. The game uh, we get with the Texans against the Texans. Uh, against uh, uh, Cam no, Newton. It was kind Can't of like a Carl the Cam Banks Newton thing. Game. You remember that Carl Banks the, oh. uh, sack on Randall Cunningham, that Monday night football game in yeah. 1988? Yeah, he gets up and he throws a touchdown pass. It's uh, that's when Coughlin was. My prob- here's my problem with this Giants trivia, as we've done in the last handful of weeks here. You guys gotta warm me up. You you you, you set me up with the NBA and the baseball. I'm not thinking. I am so intertwined in those things, and all of a sudden, bang! I got I start thinking football. I'm not at my age with my lack of intelligence. I'm, I'm just not capable. Wait, the the the. The Kiwanuka game was that against the Titans or was that against yeah, it was the, the Titans? It was that Vince was Young. the Titans. Who the hell? That wasn't uh, Vince Young, probably. That no. was Vince. Yeah, Vince. Yeah, Young. Vince That's Young. when Coughlin was went down on his knees, like. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it was two thousand six. Yeah. Oh my God. Jesus. And again, much like uh, much like the the rushing yard leaders question that I gave you a few weeks ago. And I said, just for context, Saquon Barkley was like number 16 on that list. And, you know, and he hasn't been around often. It goes to show you that the, the rushers premier rushers have kind of been barren. Uh, I think you could say the same about the sacks because number 14 on this list is Olivier Vernon. Mm. So they ne- Limited, haven't yeah. necessarily had a, a lot of premier pass rushes. Well, but, you know, and again, I think we're talking. I, I haven't looked it up. I, I think it was eighty-two. The sack came in vogue. I mean, so I mean, it's a long time, but it's you know, it's not forever. It's so I'm looking. 30. I'm looking at these players, Rob, to give you a definitive answer. Um, it was yeah, George Martin was the earliest player that was on this list, and his first year in the league was 1975. Right. Okay. Yeah, so but that, that does the, not mean that does not mean that's when the sack. That doesn't mean it's no, yeah, no, 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 no. Yeah. yeah, yes, yeah. yes, I know that. Right, I, I was just it. saying that he was the earliest, um, the earliest tenured giant that was on this list. All right, so Bruce. I was trying to go four. with the unobvious guys to give Bruce a better shot. Yeah, because you know Bruce's projectile vomited on himself two <laughs> weeks in a row. You needed to extend an olive branch to him. Yeah, I needed 19, him to feel 19, good about himself. 1982 is when the NFL. Started it was 82. Okay. Okay, so yeah, yeah. so I mean, was George Martin's you... George Martin's sacks were like retroactive then? I guess no, they didn't. They no. didn't count them. They from just, they just started counting them from eighty. He played till what 88, 87, How, how many does he have on that list, Andrew? That you eighty eight. He played until nineteen eighty eight. George. Yeah. Martin. No, but how many total sacks did he have? Oh, he had forty six total sacks. In well, you probably could have added another fifteen to twenty sacks, maybe from seventy five to eighty two. You know, a couple of season, maybe. Let me, uh, you know, I'll, I'll click on his. Yeah, page it's right like now. you know, we never, we never recognize, you know, the, the true greatness of teams 
uh, you know, like the Browns and the, you know, and, uh, and those Packer teams of the sixties that, you know, won all those championships in the, in the pre Super Bowl era. Yeah. I'm looking uh, at the so numbers right now. He compiled 46 sacks between 82 and 88, no sacks between 75 and 81. So they're not a retroactive. He compiled those numbers when they started um, counting the sack. Yeah. Yeah. But they have zero, they have zero for him sack from 75 to 81. Yes. There's no sacks. He compiled 46 from well, 82 to 88. He had six, well, they have nine. zero sacks because they weren't counting sacks. So that's right. why it says zero there. Right. That's he what probably had sacks, but oh, they just, yeah. Yeah, they weren't yeah, being yeah. recognized. But as far as the statistics are concerned, yeah. all the only stacks that counter from that when they started yeah. counting it. So he yeah. compiled 46 in that seven year seven year span. So yep, yep, yep. Rob, yep, you're burying yep. the lead. And he's from he's from you your favorite university too, Rob. Guys, I won. Can we just have a little moment of silence here and relish <laughs> and take in what this what this represents? <laughs> I'm surprised anyway. you guys – I know, Andrew, you're not a big Giant fan. Rob, I'm surprised we're even on talking terms. I'm texting him the other night. I'm sitting around flipping around at channels and commercials oh. of the NBA game. How the hell could you do that to yourself? I, and I watched oh, it. Could you, oh, my Bruce, God. This was, this was something else. You know this what? I wanted, I wanted to test my threshold. I said so, – so I'm not totally confusing the listeners here. The NFL Network is replaying a game from 2010 in the late going of December – Philly uh, uh, Eagles at Giants, huge game, number two seed in the conference on the line. Giants blow a 28 to three lead. It was two touchdowns in the fourth quarter. Eagles come storming back, win on a last second kickoff return by, by Deshaun Jackson. Easily one of the three most brutal losses that franchise has sustained in, in the Super Bowl era. Uh, I, I didn't sleep for days. And I'm sitting there and I'm watching the game and I'm texting Rob and I'm giving the details where they are. And I said, here we are in the fourth quarter and I'm, and I'm watching Matt Dodge, (laughs) the the punter for the giants. How we even kept that ball. And how do you punt the ball to Sean? I mean, Coughlin gave him strict details. Keep the ball away from the Sean Jackson. I I still remember remember an idea. The next time you want to do something like that, just go downstairs. I don't know if you have a shed or you have a basement with some tools. Take a hammer and just whack yourself in the balls with it because <laughs> it'll, it'll be it'll be less pain. Coughlin, Coughlin almost you know killed him on the field. Oh That's my! That's what God. I was gonna say. I remember that. I remember him pulling Dodge to the side and screaming but, at him. You could read his lips saying, he, "What are you doing?" He told them, "Do not yeah. punt him the ball." Yeah, but yeah. but you know what? To me, Dodge is he's low hanging fruit. It's almost like Bill. You know, Bill Buckner got. Far more blame than he ever deserved for what happened to the Red Sox in game six of the 86 World Series, you know, at Chase Stadium. That game was already lost. The Red Sox were up two runs, nobody on base, two strikes on the next two hitters. The the Red Sox couldn't close the deal. That wasn't on Bill Buckner. That was on Rich Gedman, Bob Stanley, and Calvin Chiraldi. Same thing with that game against the Giants. They didn't lose because Matt Dodge kicked it to Deshaun Jackson. That game was already lost by any number of other factors. And, you know, it's just amazing. Some of these people in sports that we just wrongfully fit with the goat horn. Now, I don't want to be lumping, lumping multiple games together here. Was that the, the, the Giants had a big lead and Michael Vick stormed back in the second half. Is that yeah. the game? Yeah. It's the same game, yeah. right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So you're right, Bruce. Yeah. They were, they were 28 to three. They were up three touchdowns in the second half. Yeah. I remember watching that game at my bro- at Dean's house, Andrew, at my okay. brother's house, and I was feeling great. I was like, oh, my – like, you feel like the rest of the day, your whole week is just going to be fabulous. 
You know and all of a sudden, within an hour, it just ripped out of your heart. And you know, guys, oh. we talk about momentum. You want to know the interesting thing about that season? So the Eagles have one of the greatest miracle wins in their history. Giants, one of the more, most brutal losses. Giants didn't win another game that season, didn't make the playoffs. Eagles, they win that game. The next week, they got snowed out. We had a nor'easter. They ended up playing a Tuesday night home game against a going-nowhere Minnesota Vikings team, and they lose. They lose. And then they lose the regular season finale of their season at home, and then they lose at home in the wild card round to the Packers. So the Eagles, who had this momentous, miraculous, universe-altering win against a hated rival that, that should have that should have sealed up the, a number two seed and a bye week for them, end up not winning another game the rest of the year. And oh, by the way, as devastating as that was for the Giants, the next season, 2011, they go nine and seven, end up winning the Super Bowl. And win the Super Bowl. Yeah. Now, now again, I don't want to be lumping multiple yeah. seasons together here. That year was that the Week 17 loss against the Donovan McNabb led Washington Redskins, or was that a different season? Uh, I don't know who they lost to. Again, you know, because what I think they had a play five days later because, like I said, they ended up playing on a Tuesday. On a night. Tuesday, right, right. Um, I don't know who the regular season loss was, and I'm not sure exactly what the import of that game was. They may have already forfeited that number two seed and the bye when they inexplicably lost that game to the Vikings at home. Yeah, they lost. They lost that game to the Redskins. Was it the Donovan? You're talking, you're talking about the Giants. You're talking about the Giants. No, I was talking no. about the Eagles. The Eagles. Oh, the Eagles. Could... I'm sorry. I thought you talked about the Giants because the Giants in 2010 they played last Giants game of the season. Last they... the Giants were 10 and six that year. 10 and six. Yeah. In Washington uh, in week 17. I know the Giants did. Yeah. That's where Coughlin gave that famous, not famous speech, but if you're a Giant fan, you remember he goes in the locker room. He knew they weren't making the playoffs. He said, anybody that can't respect the 10 and 6 season can kiss my ass. <laughs> and I'm not paraphrasing. That's no, okay. yeah, no, he and he's right. Now, I have one football-related question here that it, it's really been boggling my mind all week, and I've looked into it, and I, I can't understand why, and it seems like no one else is asking this question, so maybe I'm just naive and not in the know here. Oh, you can are. One of, can, one, <laughs> can one of you guys please explain to me why the New York Jets, who have $28 million in cap space, have been so hell-bent on getting Jamison Crowder to take a pay cut? Good I question. know that was a major bone of contention, and that was an issue, and I know they got it settled. But... They got it settled, but I, I couldn't understand for the life of me why. They have $28 million in cap space. Not like they're did up they, against the did cap. They sign, did they re-sign? Did they um, – no, wait. Did they, did they franchise Marcus May, or did they sign Marcus May to an I, extension? Uh, they, they franchise tag extension, but I think they did franchise them. They franchise them, right? So maybe, listen, maybe they're looking at. No, I, don't, I don't think they franchise them because his cap number is only ten million. It would be more than that if he was franchise tagged, wouldn't it? Unless uh, I, look, not, I thought that. Well, oh no, way, they, I they, yeah, they, they, I they yeah, the franchise tag is. They did franchise him. That's yeah, what I thought. Yeah. yeah. So I look, maybe they're just looking up and open up some cap space over the next couple of years too. 
I mean, don't but forget if, if this Pavel is the last year of Crowder's contract too. He's an unrestricted free agent after this season. This is why it didn't make any sense to me why they were so hell bent on getting him to take a pay cut. He's not on the books for any money after this season. I mean, yeah, they drafted Elijah Moore. They signed Corey Davis. You could still make the argument that Crowder is the best receiver on that team currently. It, like, and he's only making eleven million dollars, which is again well, they paid Corey Davis, who's a slot receiver for all intents and purposes. They, they might be looking to bring in a Richard Sherman. That would be one move. Yeah, I don't think so. I, I don't get the idea that they're doing anything of it on a large scale with the you know the whole post. They also have to bring in a veteran quarterback, don't they? I mean, do they have a veteran quarterback on well, the roster? I, I saw the report that no. before Nick Mullins got signed, the, the Jets were looking to sign him. So they got to bring in a veteran quarterback. I, it would not shock me if Richard Sherman's on the Jets. That would not shock me. And to reunite with Robert Sala? Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me. You know, I've been hearing reports about the Steelers maybe showing interest in him just because they had to cut Steven Nelson. They're a little short in the cornerback. Yeah, he doesn't room. seem like a Steeler kind of player, though, Richard Sherman. I don't no, know he doesn't at all. He doesn't at all. And they actually yeah. had a meeting, too, uh, last week with Malik Hooker, who uh, is a really good safety, Malik Hooker, but he's coming off of a torn Achilles, didn't really have any suitors in free agency. He flew to Pittsburgh, had a meeting, uh, and then the next day he was on Twitter posting laughing emojis about – I know my worth or something like that. So I guess no deal is getting done from that front. So look, I know, uh, I, know I know money talks. If you're Richard Sherman, I don't know why you, why you come to the jets. Uh, I mean, look at this, at this stage of things, as, as is the case with most veteran players, you're, you're looking for another shot of that brass ring. Now I, I don't know what the, the narrative is on Sherman right now and how much he has left in the tank. And I, and I agree with you. I mean, he certainly has, you know, value is as a veteran guy, been there and done that. From, from, but from his point of view, you want to go to a contending team. Yeah, and he already won. I mean, Sherman represented himself in free agent negotiations, if you remember. Uh, and was able to secure himself pretty much a fully guaranteed deal with the San Francisco 49ers. No. So he already, you know, as the cool kids say, he already got the bag. So Problem now you would be thinking he'd be ring aren't, If those contending teams aren't interested – you know, and then you're just going to somebody that's going to give you some sort of a payday. Well, you know what? I actually had a headline about my Steelers that really rubbed me the wrong way today. And, uh, Rob, you were the kind of guy who, during the draft, um, you, you addressed how Pittsburgh needed a running back, but you were a little hesitant about taking them in the first round just because of their offensive line. But, you know, I, I assured you that Najee Harris would get the job done, that the line was going to be good enough, but – uh, Pittsburgh's new offensive coordinator, Matt Canada, who was the quarterback's coach last year. He's pr newly promoted to offensive coordinator. And they asked him about how different his offense is going to be from um, Randy Feetner's old offense. And his response really rubbed me the wrong way. He said, um, we're going to run it how Ben wants to run it. Yeah, I saw that headline. Oh, boy. So that essentially means that Najee Harris um, will have the best seat in the house on the sidelines watching the game or in you know pass protecting yeah, from the okay. shotgun you, you don't want to you don't want to put any unnecessary tread on those tires in a season that's a transitional at best for that franchise anyway no i'm not saying you got to run the guy into the ground but you know running it the offense the way ben wants to run it we've been running the offense the way ben wants to run it that's why they needed to be a, a change in offensive philosophy because going out there and throwing the ball 45 times a game was not going to win you games against good defenses let alone winning the playoffs well i mean let's you know to be perfectly blunt isn't this more or less a glorified farewell tour as far as the steelers in 2021 are concerned they're not contending in that division. 
No, they're not contending in the division, but you know, they, they addressed the number one need, which they had, which was getting the running back because their running game was non-existent and they got rid of the offensive coordinator because the offense was too one dimensional. And to have the off the newly hired offensive coordinator come out and say the same thing, it's almost as if, well, what did you even make these moves for? If you're just going to do the same, the same old nonsense, the best Ben farewell tour, in my opinion, would be to try to feel the best team, have the best philosophy to try to compete as best you can. My idea of a farewell tour is let's go out there and play schoolyard football and let Ben throw the ball 50 times on his way out the door. Hey, look, this, this is a flagship franchise. Uh, They, they are, they, they know what they're doing. Uh, You know, it's just this, they're, they're in a they're on one of the wrong, you know, turns on the spin cycle right now. That's just how it is. The Steelers rarely find themselves in that situation, but that's just where they are. Uh, you know, they have an iconic figure at quarterback that doesn't, you know, know better than to call it quits because let's face it, his, his better days are long gone. It's easy for me to sit here and say, yeah, you know, push Ben Roethlisberger out the door. Like, okay, well then what? Dwayne Hoskins, Mason Rudolph. I mean, if those are the answers, what's the question? But Again, I'm, I'm not going. I'm not going too crazy about. I tell you what, though, Bruce. Both, both, both of those guys. Both of those guys, Haskins and Rudolph, they're better than that coach killer you got over there in New York. Yeah, yeah. Daniel <laughs> Jones, the coach killer. Yeah, he's, wow. uh, yeah, he's, so is Deshaun Watson a Bronco by the time the season starts? Well, his old buddy Kareem Jackson, who's now a safety with the yeah. Broncos, former teammate there with the Texans, says he's spoken to the big guy, and uh, Deshaun Watson has his druthers. Denver is the uh, desired destination spot. Now, if you're Kareem Jackson, why would you even want to come out and say that? Like, you know, if you're if Deshaun Watson is talking to you with somewhat confidence, why would you come out and say that? You know, because you know what? I don't know that they say. You know, I I don't know when they're talking. If Deshaun Watson is is telling Jackson, you know what? Don't say this to anybody. I mean, you would think yes, common sense would dictate that Jackson, you know, would know better than to say something like this, you know, in public, but. Given where he's been in that situation where he has not exactly been shy about his desire to get the hell out of Houston, I don't think it's the, the worst crime against humanity. But Denver all of a sudden finds themselves in a very, very interesting scenario, to say the least, right now. I mean, sure. We're still waiting on bated breath to see what's going to be with Aaron Rodgers. And I keep coming on here, guys, every week telling you, I don't think he's going anywhere. I think Rodgers ultimately, at the end of the day, there's far more good than outweighs the bad. He wants to stay put. The, the the Packers realize they're in a window of Super Bowl contention. They don't want to jettison it. But, boy, I'll tell you what. Could the management team there please find a, a, a crane to take their massive feet out of their collective mouths? I mean, just one thing after another. Shut up. Just shut up. Don't have, you know, whoever it was from the Team Brass go out and, and write some – article about how this the Rogers is dividing the fan base. And then I'm not suggesting what the president, you know, Mark Murphy said in depicting Aaron Rodgers as a quote unquote complicated fella is any gross crime either. But given the situation that you're in with this guy right now, you're absolutely stoking the flames. So contextually speaking, yeah, that was a very stupid thing to say, uh, you know, right now it's, I still think Rodgers stays put. 
But I'll tell you what, Packers brass isn't making it any easier to, to keep drawing that conclusion. No, I know. But, you know, going back to Watson, though, I, I mean, to me, if I'm the Texas, I look, I'm looking to make a deal with the Eagles. They got the draft capital and they got Jalen Hurts, who I don't think is going to be that great of a quarterback. But he's still somebody else. He's still somebody that at least the Texas can put in place right now. He's better. He'll be better than Tyrod Taylor. He'll be bring a little excitement to the Texan organization. But you know they also have the draft capital. To me, the Eagles make the most sense. And obviously, we don't want to see him going to the Eagles, being Giant fans, Bruce. We don't want him in our division. So bring him out to Denver. But I mean, to me, if I'm the Texas, I'm looking to make a deal with the Eagles if the Eagles are. Are, are cooperating. I don't yeah. disagree with with you, and I know it's the NFL, not the NBA, where the players absolutely have total control over where they're going. But I still think Watson still has some strong influence about where he ultimately ends up going. And I, at this point, have no idea whether he has any interest in any way, shape, or form of going to Philadelphia. I don't know he does. I don't know that he doesn't. But by all indications, Miami, uh, Denver, they have been depicted as des- desirous landing spots for him. Well, and also it was reported that Tua Tagovailoa threw five interceptions and seven. Yeah, on seven well, it was also today. it was also a bad weather day. I mean, look, I'm not I'm not a big guy. I'm not a big Tua guy at all. I don't think he's going to be that great. Nor do I do think Jalen Hurts is going to be that great. They'll be good, I guess but I don't think they're going to set the NFL on fire in any way, shape, or form, in my opinion. I just you don't. Know, Miami, Miami is – they're in a real tough situation. I know, uh, you know, like Daniel Jones, for whatever reason, the jury has already come in on, uh, on Tua Tugavailoa, despite the fact that he was a rookie in a pandemic season coming off major hip surgery. But, I mean, you read what there is on the guy, he's not – the biggest guy in the world doesn't have the strongest arm and isn't necessarily all that mobile. I'm like, well, what the, why was he taking fifth overall then? And to <laughs> compound that problem for Miami, the guy who was drafted immediately thereafter at the same position, Justin Herbert looks to be absolutely unequivocally a world beater. Yeah. I, I'm, give give look, the guy a chance, but you know what? If Deshaun Watson is available where he may not be this time of year from now, doesn't Miami at least have to be seriously considering it? Well, can Miami even do it? Miami's big, Miami's big ammunition was in this year's draft. Now this year's draft has passed because Watson had legal trouble. No trigger was pulled on a potential trade. Do they even have the ammunition to get a deal done at this point? What do they have? Le- yeah, I, I agree with it. What do they have? They had two this year. I know they still have a lot coming from San yeah. Francisco. Well, they had the number three pick that originally belonged to Houston. Right. That they right. could have sent back. I mean, in the that key direction. would be but- the quarterback. If the Texans love Tua or they love Hurts, one or the other, that's probably the team they would want to make a deal with because they're going to have to get a quarterback back and, the other team, they're not going to hold on to Hurts, and nor would the Dolphins hold on to Tua at that point. They'll be I don't part think of the they, deal. I don't think they have to get a quarterback in return. They did draft a kid out of uh, out of Stanford. Yeah, they did. They I, did. I'm not but... suggesting he's. I'm not suggesting he's the answer uh, as far as the long term is concerned. But I, I think the Texans have a realistic view of you know what they are and where they're going to be drafting, and I think they fully understand that they're going to have the pick of the litter on either, if not the first overall selection, somewhere in that top three. 
No, but Hertz isn't making big money. Let's not forget he was a second round pick, so that wouldn't kill them for him to be part of the return. Well, you know, hey, look, a lot of it is is how how do they evaluate the quarterbacks in next year's class too? That that that, that goes. Oh a yeah, long way. Uh, yes, yeah. yeah. That goes into the decision making process by far. No doubt. By far, if, especially if you know you're going to be at the basement in the league, which Houston is. I mean, if they're going into the season, it looks pretty much like a foregone conclusion that Tyrod Taylor is going to be their starting quarterback this year. And we know that he is certainly not letting the world on fire. How he continues to get starting opportunities. In he's, like the of, of, he's like the Freddy Krueger of he's like the Freddy Krueger of quarterbacks. You I think, mean, it's you, unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, they're they a terrible team, and they're in a good division. I mean, Tennessee got a whole heck of a lot better with the trade they made last week. In Julio Jones, they were already you know, a playoff team. And, and, you know, the Colts, I think we all believe that Carson Wentz is going to resemble more of the uh, MVP type guy. He was a handful of years ago. And you got Trevor Lawrence and the Jaguars too. Yeah. Yeah. Who are on the up, uh, on the upswing for sure. Yep. So Houston's in the basement. So yeah, I guess it depends how they feel about next year's class. I know Tommy is high on a couple of quarterbacks from next year's class. He already started doing his 2022 homework. So um, he knows of a couple guys coming out of next year's draft. So I, I, guess I haven't we'll have read. Uh, uh, listen, I would defer to Tommy because he's forgotten more about this kind of stuff than I'll ever know. Uh, but from what I've read, you know what a you know geek I am with this this sort of thing because I'm thinking about worst case scenarios for the Giants next year. I haven't read glowing things about the prospects next year. But again, you know who knows who was uh, why why am I drawing a kid a blank on the kid the kid the Jets drafted? I mean, who was he? This time last year, nobody knew that. Zach, Will- well, Zach, Zach Wilson. Wilson, yeah, no. Well, well, well yeah, that's, that's the big thing with next year's class is the that it doesn't Burrow, really. The year before, the, I mean, the year before, Joe Burrow was was basically rated as a sixth round pick. Yeah, yeah, a lot can happen so from you know, now until the end of happen. college football season. But the yeah. big thing going into this season is, you know, it, it's which is close to the norm. I mean, this year, I mean, we've known that Trevor Lawrence was a potential number one pick since he stepped foot on Clemson's campus. But for the most part, when you go year by year. Uh, you let the men separate from the boys with the playing on the field during their last seasons of eligibility. There very rarely is a glimpse of who exactly is going to be the number one pick. And this year is more of the same. There's a bunch of quarterbacks, five or six of them that are lumped into the same conversation. And there's really no clear cut answer as to who's going to be the top one. The kid Howell from North Carolina is a big prospect. Slovis from UFC is another one. Spencer Rattler, the kid from Oklahoma is another name that's being thrown around. Uh, There's a kid Desmond Ritter from Cincinnati who jumped on boards with his performance last year. So ultimately the college football season playing out is going to be the telltale sign and who separates from the rest of the pack and who is the big time prospect for all those teams that are going to be in the running for an upgrade at that position. Yeah. I listen. I mean, look, I know the team that you hold near and dear to your heart. They're going to be looking for a guy, you know, this this time next year. So the deeper the class, the better as far as uh, the, the black and gold are concerned. That's for sure. Uh, Rob, do you have a do you have a story for yours truly tonight? I don't think so. I think I'm storied out right now. Storied out. You've lived a uh, you've lived a very long, a very eventful life. He's lived a, yeah. He's lived a very he's lived a very cushiony existence. From what I could tell, getting to know him over these last few months, he, he's kind of you know the the silver spoon in the mouth. I, that, that's just the kind of imagery I think our your listenership <laughs> needs to get when it comes to Rob is concerned. <laughs> I, I did. I, I thought about one story today, but not really a funny story. I guess it would be funny now. It wasn't funny when it happened, though. All right. So then spill the beans. Story time with Rob yeah, let us, on this let us Tuesday be, night. Let us be the judge of that. Yes, yes, yes. It's nighttime. I need a good bedtime story. So Come we were uh, 
we're playing a in a champ in a championship in softball. <laughs> this was so bad. <laughs> and well, it's it's a best three out of five. Um, three out of two out of three. I'm sorry, best two out of three. And it's coming down to the third game, so it's championship game. That's it. Win or win or lose. That's now, it. is You're this done. the is this the same softball league that your I used buddy to play Mitch's at, father used to, used to bet on? No, 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 oh, no. Okay. That was that 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 back then was just. That was just local, just a bunch of us local guys. Just oh, just like recreational? All kids from all over the neighborhoods. Though. Okay, like, this is this that. is this is organized league yeah. that you're talking about now. Yeah. Okay, okay. So now we're we're, at, we're actually down and we were down in this game originally seven nothing. We come back into the fifth inning or fourth inning. We score three runs. We come into the fifth inning and there was one umpire in the first two games that was god awful and he screwed us every which way to Sunday. On, I mean, there was so many blatantly bad calls that it looked like that he was just favoring the other team. So now I, I just, I'm, I'm the ultimate sore loser. I'm bad, very bad. So now it comes down to the point where we're in the bottom of the fifth in, in the deciding game. There was bases loaded, ground ball, force out at second. Kid clearly misses the base. Umpire calls them out. And I start just going ballistic. Umpire comes over to start trying to warn me. I get so mad, right? Now it's 7-3 at the time, fifth inning, deciding game. I pick up a cooler filled with all our drinks and stuff. We just had waters and Gatorades and stuff in there. I pick it up over my head and fling it over the fence at the umpire. Umpire jumps away from it. That's it. Game over. Forfeit. (laughs) And the game is over. (laughs) Oh, my God. Oh, my God. So there's a lot of violence in your past. Oof. Should have had a couple Oof. of guys with white sleeveless jackets out there to come get you. Oh, Bruce, I was mad. Why didn't you, why didn't they just send the, why didn't they just send the, uh, the call replay? What happened? That was so Did bad. Get it oh overturned on replay. That was so bad. So now we know what really grinds Rob's gears. It's Huey I, Lewis listen, and force play neighborhood I, plays at second base. Oof. See, this I, wasn't I, an. I, this I, wasn't I, a neighborhood. It wasn't even a. It, it was out of the zip code. <laughs> I, I occupy myself with more of the worldly, pressing issues of our time. Like I'm worried about how the whole summit's going to go down tonight with, with with Biden and Putin. I concern myself with that. I think about. I don't know. Was it the 1990s? Jennifer Aniston or the 2000s Kaylee Kuko from the Big Bang Theory, who's hotter? Things like that that really matter. Those those are the kind of things that I, I occupy my mind with. You mean you, you, so so you're going with the younger generation? I thought you would be the Estelle Getty B. Arthur guy from from Golden Girls. No, no, Ru, I, never had a chance, I, never had a I thought maybe Rue McClanahan kind of got you heated up. No. Yeah, I mean, again, if I had if I. If I had a Hail Mary chance at, at, at hotties like that, I'd, I'd probably go there, but eh, they're not with us anymore. So on more modern, you know, generation kind of stuff. Maybe I have a chance to outwit a couple of these kind of girls, but, you know. <laughs> well, my opinion would be over Kelly Kuko. So uh, I don't know why that name is not ringing a bell for me. You know what? Big bank, big bank name, Kelly Kuko. She did. What was the commercial she always did too? She did the uh, commercials that 
William Shatner did also. You don't know also. who Kelly Cuoco is, Andrew? Really? Oh, I wasn't. Price, no, I wasn't about her. Talking about Jennifer who? What was the other one? Aniston. Jennifer Aniston from Friends. <laughs> I'm, I'm joking. No, Friends it was Kaylee Cuoco. I don't know who oh. Kaylee Cuoco is. Again, again, you, you, <laughs> Kaylee you're doing Kuko what is... I've done most of my adult life, Andrew. You're dating yourself. <laughs> no, I'm never. I honestly, the Big yeah, Bang Theory has got to be. You weren't. You literally weren't born when that show was released. So again, you know what you could do with that. <laughs> She's from the Big Bang Theory. You said. Kaylee Cuoco? Yeah. Amongst others, yes. Yeah. I got to say, I don't know if this is going to be an unpopular opinion or not. That's got to be the dumbest show to ever hit TV airwaves. Oh, you're, you're crazy. I never, so watched, I never watched that show. I can't the, say whether it's dumb or not. I just never watched it. So don't, don't watch it. I don't really have an opinion on it because I just never watched it. Put what, it this what? way, Rob. You'll, you enjoy trivia much more than you'll enjoy Big Bang Theory. Let me tell you, let me tell you, let me tell you both <laughs> something. You know, you got to go. You got to take the same path I did. Have, get your career thrown on skid row. Find yourself with a lot more time on your hands. Turn on TBS and you can watch all these things in one fell swoop. Get yourself caught up. You ever watch what? the Oxygen Channel Snapped with the women that go crazy on the men? Snapped? Ooh. Snapped. Yeah. No, that I never heard of. No. Oh, that's good. The women that go nuts on the men and kill the men. What was that other show that you were watching during quarantine, Rob, that we were all making fun of you for? It was the uh, something with the something wife, something my my. Oh, something. I love watching all those housewives, those train wreck shows. No, 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 best. no, not housewives. No, 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 no. It was. Um, oh, my God. Well, what, what, we were ragging on you for watching this show. It wasn't real housewives, but it was like something to do with the spouse. It was like a kind of a reality type show, but it, you know. Oh, Temptation Island. No, it wasn't that. Hmm. Andrew, oh. I'm very, I'm very worried about Rob. On the next Four Score podcast, can we do nothing but like show him ink blots? And just ask him what he sees and just <laughs> do a two-hour episode on that. Listen, we can do a two-hour episode. We might be on. We might have to pull an all-nighter and do a twenty-four-hour episode if that was the case. <laughs> no, you if know they what? ever decided to do an X-ray on my brain, it would be, it, it would be ugly. If yeah. if I'm if I remember correctly. And I don't know if this is again. I don't know if I'm lumping things together. This show that I'm referring to. I think it's the show that you were watching, but I'm not entirely sure. There was like a meme going around the internet for the longest time. It was like this insanely, insanely fat guy who had like a really, really attractive wife, but they were paired together because of the show as like an experiment. Maybe I don't know. As an experiment. Uh, they, they could do that with me. I mean, that guy grossly outkicked the coverage and believe me, if you see my wife, you'd say the same thing about me. <laughs> I'm trying to think what the name of the show was. The, you know what? You know what we're going to do? Mid-podcast, I'm going to call down to my mom because my mom would definitely know oh, what show I'm talking about. Let me, you come up let me, in about 10, 15 minutes for you, with your milk and cookies anyway. Me, yeah, yeah. She'll tuck, she'll tuck me in. Well, she's got to change his diaper first. Oh, Hold on. Let me, let me call it down. <laughs> hey, Ma. You downstairs? Oh, All right, yeah, I'm in the middle of recording hey, a podcast Hey, right Mom. Hey, Mommy. Folks, what folks was the this show? is not a reenactment. This is going on right now. This is... <laughs> yeah, this is a live conversation. Just you think, Bruce, you were doing a show with Mad Dog Russo. <laughs> but what was the show during quarantine that Rob was watching that we were ragging yeah, on? You gotta, you're doing a show with a guy calling his mommy, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, you, called... you talk about it, a child shall leave Rob, them. I got the oh, answer. Yeah, it's yeah. 90 Day Fiance. Oh, that's, that's the best. That's not the best. It's the dumbest oh, the concept of a show I've ever heard no, of. No, no, they got all different versions of it, too. Oh, that show's the best. Thank you, Mom. Thanks, that, Mom. Don't that forget to lay out the Bruce, footsie pajamas. Bruce says thank you, too. That show's the, the best. the footsie pajamas. <laughs> no, the 90 Day Fiance is, is, oof. 
Awesome. All right, listen, you want you want me to plug oh, and I'm Pete Alonzo hit a sack fly, I guess, while yeah. I was walking Three, around. Two. Okay, I gotta plug a show and a podcast. The show and my girlfriend Brooke and I started watching it a few days ago. It's called Defending Jacob. Yes, very good. Uh, you're watching it too, Bruce? I saw it already. Very good. Let me you tell watch you how the whole it thing? ends. <laughs> Let me tell you how it we ends. are we are six six episodes in out of oh, eight. So you only got two more. Yes, yes. Very good. Because she's a big she's a big Marvel fan. She's obsessed with Chris Evans, and he's obviously the main character in the show. He plays Captain America also. Um, that I did not know. But yes, yes. But yeah, so we, we, love, we, got we the, love the legal dramas here too. Very did good. You, now, do you have Apple TV? Or did you, yep. did you get a membership? Or you already had a membership? Yeah. Did you see the uh, – what it's like on the whole – it's really a takeoff on the whole Matt Lauer scenario – with NBC, uh, Jennifer Aniston, Steve Carell, amazing cast. It was a again. He's throwing. Scene. I told you I didn't know who this Jennifer chick was. Uh, yeah, you know what? Again, <laughs> Rob, I'm talking to you. This I'm is totally, like, you know, I'm totally joking. Once again, so the Fenley Jake was on. That's on Apple TV, then, right? You know what? Yeah. Apple TV, though, all you need to do is download the Apple TV app to watch shows. I do. I have that. Yeah, I have. There's all certain that. I have shows. A regular Apple TV. I got Apple TV apps. Yeah. Well, there's but that. there's yeah. Apple TV Plus though, where you need a paid membership to like watch certain stuff. And what is it? Two seasons the show, or is it Defending Jacob? It's only one season, eight episodes. That's it. Yes, and it's like a it's a legal drama. It's it's um. Based uh, on you, a true story? Do you know Chris Evans? You know yeah, Chris yeah, Evans? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Based on yeah. a true story, though? Uh, I, don't I don't know if it's based on a true story or not. But it's it, it, Chris Evans is like the assistant district attorney. And there's a murder at his son's school. And his son is the suspect and gets arrested for it. And he tries to disprove it while not actually being the son's lawyer because he can't because of conflict of interest. But it's it's very, very interesting. We're six episodes in. Bruce said he finished it. He recommends it too, right, Bruce? It's, it's phenomenal. Absolutely. And also I'll, on Apple, the, the Jennifer that. Aniston, Steve Carell thing, the, again, based off the whole scandal with Matt Lauer. Right. With the Today Show. And for those of you that say, I'm a man, I don't get into that stuff, stop freaking lying. You love that. <laughs> crap. It was now, a great series. Ten episodes, Apple TV called The Morning Show. There's another one on Apple TV that I've been hearing great things about. The mayor of East Town. I seen that very a little slow moving. You watched it already? Yes, I saw all at at episode. It's Kate Winslet, so you know she she's good in it. But it's definitely slow moving. Yeah, good good show. I mean, I tell you the truth, episodes seven and eight were you know it was a good ending to it. You know, mm-hmm. you you think it ends in episode six, let but me, it doesn't. Uh, let me. Uh, I cannot recommend uh, this to you highly enough with the, with summer coming on. Robbie, go see Jaws. I'm just going to give away the ending. The shark did it. <laughs> <laughs> so now I have a I have a podcast to plug too. And I know I hope you listen to Four Score the podcast over everything else. Obviously, everyone out there. But um, a buddy of mine, Jimmer, recommended it to me, and I started listening yesterday, and I'm hooked. It's called Whistleblower, and it's a story behind the scandal in the NBA back in 2007 with Tim Donahue. Oh, Tim yeah. Donahue, the games. Yeah. Uh, but this goes really in-depth and kind of gives you information to prove that he wasn't the sole rogue official in this scandal. Is it like a the documentary NBA or, is it a, or is it a series? It's a podcast series. It's an eight-part podcast series. Oh, oh I thought you were talking about a uh, 
a TV thing. No, no, it's an eight-part podcast series. Each episode is around it's from 25 to 35 minutes long. Each episode, there's interviews with Tim Donahue. There's interviews with Rashid Wallace. There's interviews with an FBI agent, another criminal justice uh, professor from the Citadel who actually wrote a book on it. The whole thing. I mean, I'm only two episodes in. I think that it's an eight-parter. But after the first two episodes, I'm hooked. I haven't had free time to listen to it today. Probably going to resume tomorrow. But for both of you guys, I know, Rob, you work from home during the day, too. So if you want to listen to a podcast while you work, this one, highly recommend it. And I actually, on the record here, actually reached out via DM on Twitter to the creator of this podcast to try to get him on here. I didn't get a response yet, but I want to try to get this guy on here because it's, it's that good. What's it? What's the name of it again? It's whistleblower. Whistleblower. Okay. Yep. My, my lack of IQ doesn't usually let me uh, go down the, the path of documentaries, but that does sound interesting. It's very, it's very, very good. And the guy's name who created, he's the producer and like the narrator of the whole thing. His name is Tim Livingston. And in fact, he said that he, he was working. I don't know if it was for Bleacher Report or Fan Sided. I forget who he said he was working for at the time, but he wrote an article maybe 10 years ago or eight years ago about Tim Donahue. And he basically kind of like, he didn't absolve Tim Donahue of blame in the scandal, but he basically said that he's being painted as more of a villain as he really is. And this is more of a widespread problem throughout the NBA. And he said, Tim Donahue actually emailed him and said like, thank you for writing this. Like finally somebody understands what I went through. And so they got in touch and they kind of built a relationship and Tim Donahue kind of agreed to do this podcast with them and, and talk and disclose a lot of information. It's, it's very, very good. So if you have free time to listen, I guarantee, the other one that's, I guarantee the other you one like that's, it. And I know I'm going to take shit from this from Bruce, but the other one that's really good is, is the Sammy the Bull uh, podcast. <sighs> is that Never like the same thing, like a multiple part? Sammy the Bull Gravano. You don't know the Sammy. It was Bulls? good. It was eight. From, eight, uh, eight what is, he? is eight, it? Is that the Gambino crime family? Is that? Uh, well, he, he was with Gotti. He was Gotti's right hand man. Gotti, Gotti, yeah. But uh, it, it was, I tell you, it was good. It's close it was to really, home, really it, Robbie. Good. What's that? It's close to home, there, baby. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they were, they actually, you know what, Bruce? They actually, rec- they actually recorded the podcast at the table right to the left of us in Lestrada. Uh, that they did. <laughs> oh, I know we were mic that night. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> the foreword <laughs> by Rob Giuffre. <laughs> uh, <laughs> ever since I met Robbie and went to dinner with him that night, I sleep with one eye open. Uh, <laughs> right. But all right, that'll. I, uh, I wake up the next morning. I hope there's not a horse's head sitting there next to me. Yeah, that will uh, that will close things out for the John Mendenhall edition, episode sixty-four. Sixty-four, baby. Of Four Score the Podcast. Um, thank you as always to Bruce for hopping on with us. Hopefully have uh, many more encounters like this in the future. Uh, thank you to um, everybody who continues to support the podcast. Obviously, that's a, a huge deal. And um, yes, we actually is. again have we had a, we before you came on with us tonight, Bruce. We had an uh, we had a voicemail that was related to the Islanders. I mean, the hockey isn't necessarily the, the forte. Of and yours, let me tell so. you something. I've been watching that game. You talk about a nasty, nasty game. Woof. Oh, yeah. I just, had a, I just had on the Mets. I haven't even tuned into that. I was actually – I planned on flipping back and forth from the Mets and the Nets, um, but I didn't even get around to flipping that on. But uh, we did get a voicemail from uh, Phil Brocco. We want to thank Phil for sending in the voicemail. Anyone else who wants to send in a voicemail to the hotline, 
could be anything sports related and uh, how we were talking about shows and podcasts and pop culture tonight. So if you want to send in voicemails related to that, you're more than welcome to do that as well. Um, if you want to leave a voicemail, the number is 917-426-5779. Again, that's 917-426-5779. Uh, leave your name, leave any topic. We'll get to it. If you send them in, you can follow us on social media at four score the pod on Twitter. Rob's personal account, Rob OG six with two B's R O B B O G six. Follow me on my personal account, Andrew may underscore 21. Follow me on Instagram, a underscore may 21. That's where the links to the podcast get posted. That's where you can get in touch with me. Any questions, concerns. Uh, and if you don't want to have your voice heard on the podcast, but you do want to chime in and offer your opinion or um, pony up with a question of any sort, uh, you could certainly send in a fan question to our email as well, fourscorethepodcast at gmail.com. So keep the emails, voicemails, tweets, texts coming. Um, we want to interact with everyone who listens as much as possible. We have a bunch of support, but we want to interact with the people who do support. It makes things more fun, spices things up around here. Um, so sure. huge, huge thank you to everybody for continuing to listen, continuing to support. Like I said, follow us, leave your voicemails, everything like that, and, and we'll be in touch in the near future. Episode 65 coming next week, another week of baseball. Bruce, Gun to your head. I know I asked this question the last two weeks, but gun to your head now. As we record next Tuesday, uh, will the Yankees have their death certificate signed, sealed, and delivered, or will they still be treading water? No, I don't. I don't. Uh, I've seen too much in this game, and especially with, in, in the wild card era. No, I will not be uh, issuing any death certificates on the, on the New York Yankees at this point. Next and and I, 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 you ask, I thought you were going to ask me about the Nets. No, 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 no. No. Well, when when we actually uh, we, we didn't bring up this fact before, I don't want to go too in depth on it. I just figured I'd mention it. Um, Bruce, once again, seemed like the the cool, calm, collected, level headed person in the room talking us off the ledge again next week. Uh, last week, I should say, because last night, uh, David Peterson with six scoreless after Rob and I just complained and completely roasted this guy. He went out and had his best start of the season. So kudos to him and kudos to you, bro, Bruce, for continuing to calm us down. No, uh, actually, I think you're, you're unduly giving me credit. I didn't think he'd see the line of day after, again, not being – what would he not get out of the second or third inning or whatever his previous Yeah, but, but while we were complaining about Peterson, you – I mean, you echoed the same sentiment that he had his work cut out for him if he was going to have another start. It might be his last and that they had a Peterson problem, but you also assured us that everything was just fine and we didn't need to completely jump ship. Yeah, he was fabulous, obviously, yesterday. I don't, I haven't seen the numbers, and I know he had one really tough start there this year, but he's got pretty extreme splits, does he not, home and away? Yeah, he's been he's been better at home than he well, has yeah, on the road, Well, yeah, better, but sure. I think a lot, I mean, like, a lot better at home. Yeah. Well, you know what the biggest problem, maybe we're actually talking about it on the post game with, um, I don't know if it was with Todd Zeal. It was like two weeks ago, one of the post games. I don't know if it was with Todd Zeal or Anthony Recker, um, one of them. But they were saying that Peterson had success in the short season, uh, but he actually he had the highest ball percentage out of any starting pitcher in the big leagues last last year, meaning he threw more pitches out of the strike zone than anybody in baseball last season. Um, but he also led the league in chase rate this year. He was middle of the pack towards bottom in the league in chase rate, which basically means he was doing the same stuff he was doing last year and guys weren't chasing. So he was forced to throw the pitches down the middle and that's when they were teeing off on him. So, yeah, you know, he reminds me a lot of the guy across town, the Yankees, I think a lot of similarity. Montgomery. Yeah. I, I think they're kind of the same guy. If they're not, if they're not perfect, they, they're going to get racked around. I think Montgomery's got a little bit of control, uh, a little better control, but I think, uh, I think Peterson's got, you know, marginally better stuff. But 
I think they're, you know, they're both back end of the rotation type starters. I mean, every, you know, rotation needs guys, you know, like that, but I don't think either guy is necessarily worthy of getting all that excited about. Let's put and it Montgomery down. got hit again today. Yeah. Four walks, five hits, four runs. Yeah. Hey, listen, five runs. Know, not, four not that runs. He's been exa- he hasn't been a world beater against everybody else either, but that, that Toronto team and that, that Guerrero kid is something to behold right now. 22, 22 home runs on June 15th. Yeah, yep. he's you know after Degrom, he might be the second best show in the sport right now. Unbelievable, I, I agree. He is. He's unbelievable. Even more so than Otani. And he's, he's on a and he's, he's on a team where you know guys like Marcus Simeon, who is having a tremendous season, kind of flying under the radar a little bit. Same thing with Bo Bichette. Same thing with Teoscar Hernandez, who's lighting things up. I mean, not to take anything away from Guerrero because he probably he he is the AL MVP front runner. I would say right now, but. I mean, from top to bottom, and let's acknowledge the fact that Toronto's $150 million man hasn't even seen the field for more than three, four games in George yeah. Springer yet. Yeah, Guerrero right now is leading the American League in all the triple ground, crown categories. He won in the ninth inning to tie that game up against the Red Sox. Uh, that ball hasn't come down yet. You know, isn't that, isn't that, by the way, just getting off the beaten path here for a second, isn't that one of the most, we see it all the time. It's so maddening about baseball and what separates it from the other major sports. Here are the Blue Jays, Sunday afternoon, eight home runs, the most ever forfeited in a single game by the Red Sox. They win 18-4. to four. And what happens the night, a- the night after? They lose a 2-1 game. They get their lone run in the ninth inning. I mean, that, that you know, the, the, the great John Sterling, that's baseball, Susan. That's baseball, that's baseball Susan. Susan. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's what separates this sport from all the others is that the – the greatest and most impactful dynamic of the team changes every day, depending on who your starting pitcher is. Yeah, no doubt. And no doubt. That's uh, that's a wrap for this podcast, Susan. So again, send your emails in, send your voicemails in, tweet at us, text us, follow us, do whatever you got to do to get in touch with us. Thank you for continuing to listen, continuing to support. For Rob Jufre and Bruce Shine, I'm Andrew May. We will see you guys next week. <laughs>